1: That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward and freedom will be defended.
2: 20 years later, CBS News looks back on the changes still affecting all of us.
3: We are now looking at flames shooting out of the north side of a uh, number one World Trade Center, but there are at least some windows uh, blown out and smoke billowing out of the opposite side. Oh my God, another plane has just hit. It hit another
4: building.
2: Remembering the day we will never forget.
4: People are streaming out of lower Manhattan, a major exodus here. People stopped and turned around as they watched a whole top corner of the building of one of the towers tumble.
5: We're outside the White House, which is now being evacuated.
2: Smoke uh, black and gray still pouring
6: out of the Pentagon.
2: And looking to the future. The World Trade Center is still claiming lives. People have had their lives shortened we can't afford
7: to forget not only the individuals but but their collective actions on that day
2: this is cbs news special coverage 9-11 america remembers here's correspondent steve kathan and a pleasant good
8: morning from new york city today we're going to look back 20 years to the attack on america at the world trade center the pentagon the crash of flight 93 in shanksville pennsylvania We'll recall what it was like as it happened on 9-11 with those who were there. We'll look at the U.S. response in Afghanistan and Iraq where it's left us now after a chaotic end to America's longest war, the rebuilding effort where the attacks took place, and what's ahead as we try to keep this country safe. And through it all, we'll pay tribute to the victims. 3,000 died on that awful day, leaving sadness that touched thousands more families and friends, an event that galvanized a nation at least for a little while. It's impacted our lives as we deal with increased security and a feeling that we were changed forever by what happened. We begin this morning where the attacks began 20 years ago today in New York City. CBS's Matt Piper is in Lower Manhattan.
9: And Steve, the ceremony today will pause at six moments, acknowledging when each of the World Trade Center towers was struck and fell, as well as the time corresponding to the attack on the Pentagon and the plane going down in Pennsylvania. Now, during these moments of silence here, houses of worship have been asked to ring their bells at that time. As for this memorial, it opened up 10 years ago on the 10th anniversary of the attacks back in 2011. This memorial consists of two reflecting pools set in the footprints of the Twin Towers. Each one is about one acre in size and there are 30-foot waterfalls that cascade down all sides. There's also of course a museum here for anyone who's never been here. That displays about 900 personal and monumental objects along with 60,000 other items that share stories of loss and recovery linked to the attack and the aftermath. That museum is more than 100,000 square feet. But as for what else is going on here, there will, of course, be family members of the victims who come here, many of whom have come here every single year since the attack to remember what happened here and to pause and to reflect. Steve, back to you.
8: All right, Matt Piper in Lower Manhattan. Throughout the day, we're going to get the unique perspective from my longtime colleague and friend, Cammy McCormick. She bravely covered the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan for us, events that changed her life now she reports most often from the pentagon where the ceremonies will take place in a few hours and she was there describing what happened in new york city on 9-11 good morning cammy
10: good morning steve we just saw the massive u.s flag unfurled on the side of the pentagon at sunrise and there were bagpipes They played just after it was lowered. You could hear people singing the national anthem in the background as this flag was unfurled on the west side of the building. This is where American Airlines Flight 77 struck the building. The setup for this observance is different from past years. There have been white chairs, many of them set up in front of these big screens, right next to the Pentagon Memorial, which has been closed for several months due to the pandemic. The ceremony, though, will be mostly the same. We'll hear remarks from Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Joint Chiefs Chairman General Mark Milley. A wreath will be laid and a moment of silence observed at 9.37 a.m. Eastern Time. This is when the plane struck the building, smashing through three wings of the building. Then we will have taps. The president and vice president will be here later in the afternoon. And after this observance, the memorial will be open to the families of those who were lost that day to visit. Security is very tight. This is the tightest security I've witnessed for this annual observance. Roads are closed. The entrances to the building are closed. Pedestrian tunnels. Uh, But an observance for the Pentagon workers was held yesterday. So this, Steve, is a day for the families.
8: All right, Cammie, Flight 93 was another intended Washington weapon for the terrorists on 9-11. It crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Our Jim Crusula went there 20 years ago. He's been there a lot of times since. He's back there this morning to cover the events. Hi, Jim.
11: Hi, good morning, Steve. And just about 15 minutes ago, a beautiful sunrise here over what many consider to be sacred land. And as was the case 20 years ago, it is an absolutely beautiful, pristine morning here. Very chilly in the low 40s, but again, families are gathering here. The President and First Lady will be here later this morning for the ceremony, the 20th anniversary of 9-11, obviously. And and as I say, many people in these parts of the Laurel, what's called the Laurel Highlands of southwestern Pennsylvania, about 70 miles or so driving-wise from Pittsburgh. Consider this very hallowed ground, sacred ground. Of course, the 40 passengers and crew of Flight 93 that was headed from Newark, New Jersey to San Francisco considered heroes because they took on, they took a vote, they took on their hijackers and brought the plane down here rather than its intended target, Steve, which was the U.S. Capitol, a mere 18 minutes away from here flying-wise.
8: Jim, thanks. In 2005, the team at StoryCorps launched the September 11th initiative in partnership with the 9-11 Memorial and Museum. Their mission was to record at least one story to honor each of the lives lost during the 9-11 attacks and the World Trade Center bombing in 1993. As part of our coverage, CBS News Radio has partnered with StoryCorps. Here's correspondent Monica
12: Ricks.
13: The last time I saw my daughter was the night before September 11. Esther DiNardo tells StoryCorps her daughter Marissa worked in the World Trade Center and took her family to dinner there hours before the towers fell. It was Esther's birthday. And she said to me, Mom, I got you on the top of the world. Burnell Sutton says his wife's last words were sealed with a kiss.
6: She says, where do you think you're going? you know you don't leave without kissing me.
13: Claudia Sutton was an accountant in the North Tower. My
6: children asked me, so I told them that God rescued
13: mommy from the building and took her home.
14: I basically never
13: met my grandmother. Graham Haggett is now 20. He was just 10 weeks old when his grandmother died. At 11, he gave this interview with his mom, Shelley. We were on the phone with her when her tower was hit. She said,
14: I need to go. I'll call you back when
13: I get out. But Sandra Wright never made it out of the South Tower that day. Her last email talked about how cute Graham was. Monica Ricks, CBS News, New York.
8: You're listening to live coverage 20 years later. America remembers 9-11 from CBS
15: News. Hey, y'all. Jeff Foxworthy here. Now, if you've ever found yourself repeating the same thing over and over for 75 years, you might be smoky bear
16: only you can prevent wildfires
15: that's why i'm filling in for smoky to switch things up because there's a lot more to say and i should know because my grandfather was a firefighter and one of the things he taught me is that the people that love the outdoors the most are often the ones accidentally starting wildfires which means always (laughs) b-y-o-b no bring your own bucket to the campfire And be extra careful with things like burning yard trimmings. Don't just walk away, or chances are you might be starting a wildfire. So for the love of the outdoors, go to SmokeyBear.com to learn more about wildfire prevention. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council.
17: To some people, the sound of a baby babbling doesn't mean much but that's not necessarily true. Uh, By six months, they're combining vowels and consonants. By nine months, they're trying out different kinds of sounds. And by 12 months, their babbling is beginning to take on some meaning.
18: meaning,
17: Especially if there's no babbling at all. Little to no babbling by 12 months or later, is just one of the possible signs of autism in children. Early screening and intervention can make a lifetime of difference and unlock a world of possibilities. Take the first step at AutismSpeaks.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council.
8: Our coverage of 20 years later, America Remembers nine eleven, continues now. Coming up, we'll talk with our military analyst, Jeff McCausland, about the Bush administration's initial response to the attack on nine eleven, And we'll take you eventually to the museum that now pays tribute to the victims here in New York City.
19: 8.48 a.m.,
8: Tuesday, September
3: 11th. Traffic.
20: Chopper
3: 880. All right, uh, Pat, we are just currently getting a look at the World Trade Center.
21: Another plane just hit. Right, oh my gosh, another plane has just hit, flew right into the middle of it.
22: Explosion.
19: Today we've had a national tragedy.
3: Oh my goodness, we're looking at a uh, live picture from Washington, and there is smoke pouring out of the Pentagon. <laughs>
6: It collapsed.
12: The top floors collapsed down. All of a sudden I heard a roar and I saw one of the towers blow. A giant rolling ball of flame and the firefighters screamed, run. Let the whole
16: city to We lost tons of guys. The early suspicion
23: is that Osama bin Laden was behind us. We are completely
3: shook. Our spirits will not be broken resilience of this society
16: will not be broken. We will find out who is responsible for this and they will pay for it.
5: Where are all the people who are in these buildings?
24: He called me up. He
20: said, "Um, I might not make it. The plane hit the building. There's a lot of smoke. (laughs) The feeling's caving in. I love you.
14: Give the kids a kiss. (laughs) (laughs) My father, his name is David Brugel, David, and he wears a gold cross and has a big letter D on it.
5: By late afternoon, a fireman carried an American flag to the mast and
16: raised it. Fellow firefighters wept as the stars and stripes flew in the smoke-filled sky. We will feel the loving arms of God wrapped around us and will know in our hearts they will never forsake us as we trust in him. And this is going to be a day that we will remember as a day of victory.
8: With us now is CBS News National Security Consultant Jeff McCausland. Jeff, take us back 20 years right after the 9-11 attacks. The Bush administration response is to get Osama bin Laden and topple the Taliban in Afghanistan who've been allowing him to operate.
25: That's exactly right, Steve. Initially, the Bush administration... Obviously, identifying that the attack had emanated from training areas that Osama bin Laden and other Al Qaeda members had established in Afghanistan, approached the Taliban government, which we had not recognized. Only three countries had, in fact, recognized the Taliban when they assumed power in 1996, insisting that they turn over bin Laden and the other Al Qaeda members to us. The Taliban, under Omar Imola Omar, refused to do so, and, and the war was on. And by early October, of course, the initial bombing campaign. Began over Afghanistan and support also then provided to the so called Northern Alliance, Tajiks up in the northern part of Afghanistan, which had resisted occupation and control by the Taliban government out of Kabul. In a few months, this campaign moved very quickly. And by December, uh, largely with ground infantry provided by the Northern Alliance and some American special ops and American air power, we had toppled that Taliban government and taken control of the major cities, Kandahar, Herat. Uh, Mazar-e-Sharif, as well as Kabul, and al-Qaeda was attempting to flee out of Afghanistan across the mountains into Pakistan.
8: So the war is popular early on. The progress, as you say, early on is very good, but it gets complicated. They can't find bin Laden, and American forces get tied down.
25: There's a very interesting part of this, and I don't think it's talked about a lot, and that is, of course, there was that point in time there in December of 2001 when bin Laden was moving into an area called Tora Bora, the mountains there on the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And U.S. forces attempted to uh, root him out and get him and destroy al-Qaeda at that moment. Uh, Tommy Franks, the commanding general of the operation, uh, received requests for additional ground troops to go in and do that. Uh, The story has it that uh, Franks refused to provide those troops, being concerned that we would become bogged down then uh, in Afghanistan, and al-Qaeda and bin Laden were able to escape Uh, until around 2011 or so, when, of course, he was killed in Abbottabad in in Pakistan. And at that point in time, of course, then we went to a conference in Bonn and created a new Afghan government headed by Hamid Karzai. Uh, At the conclusion there as well, the Taliban had offered to negotiate a settlement, perhaps a coalition government, uh, but the U.S. government was going to have none of that, many believe, argued most vociferously by then-Secretary of Defense, the late Donald Rumsfeld, but the United States would not negotiate with the Taliban, would not negotiate with terrorists, and were out to destroy the Taliban. And therefore, with the international support, created this new government headed by Hamid Karza.
8: Now, bin Laden wasn't found and killed until years later. Was that a tactical mistake not to move in and take that area and put more forces in?
25: Well, hindsight is always 2020, as we know, for every Monday morning quarterback. Uh, and that would seem so. If we had pursued bin Laden more vigorously there in Tora Bora, if we had destroyed him personally as a rallying point for al-Qaeda, if we had done more damage to al-Qaeda at that time, uh, then obviously we'd be at a different place today. The second thing would be, of course, whether or not we had decided to uh, negotiate with the Taliban. And then thirdly, uh, the Bush administration in the in the months and years that followed then expands the focus of the operation because we would created that government under Hamid Karzai, that we are now going to create a democracy in Afghanistan, a market economy in Afghanistan, and a large portion of the effort was also going to be focused on uh, developing women, providing education to young women, getting women out of burqa's. We were going to, in many ways, uh, emphasize human rights and women's rights as a cultural change and, and develop this country called uh, Afghanistan into at least a viable democracy.
8: All right, Jeff McCausland, thanks very much. We'll talk to you a little later on today. CBS's Cammie McCormick is with us. Certainly, Cammie, leading up to the attacks on 9-11 and, of course, the wars that followed, there were attacks on Americans overseas. There was the 1993 World Trade Center bombing.
10: Right, and uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is on trial now, pretrial hearings at Guantanamo. He has admitted involvement, and he was believed to be the financier of that attack. There were also the U.S. Embassy bombings, In Africa, in 1998, in Nairobi, Kenya, in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, which killed more than 200 people, that was the first attack that put al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden really to the public's attention. And then, of course, the 2000 suicide terrorist attack against the USS Cole, which was refueling in Aden, Yemen, and killed 17 American sailors. There were a lot of indications that something more was coming, and intelligence agencies weren't sharing the information.
8: All right, Cammie, thanks. It's a beautiful morning in New York City, much like it was 20 years ago. Sunny, cool, it's going to get warm. A beautiful shot from downtown, the images of the water. You're listening to live coverage. 20 years later, America remembers 9-11.
26: If you came across someone struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? By their clothes, their age, the way they speak? Would you notice a 16-year-old boy who got his first
27: job, not for extra spending money, but to help feed his little sisters?
26: Or a mother who's in between jobs and sometimes goes to bed hungry so her kids can have dinner? Or a 14-year-old girl who signs up to every after-school activity not to make friends, but just to get something to eat? Or a retiree who fell
6: ill and had to to choose choose between getting medicine or groceries?
26: I am the one in eight Americans who struggle with hunger. People you pass by every day but never knew were hungry. hungry. I am hunger hunger in America. America.
6: Hunger can be hard to recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America, 200 Food Bank Strong,
28: and the Ad Council. Sweet strawberry icing. You were strolling along in goodwill. When just past that mid-century side table and denim jacket, you spotted them, nestled in their display case. Miniature donut earrings. Oh, yes! Yes! Your favorite half-breakfast pastry, half-all-day dessert food, made into your favorite form of ear candy. Oh, my. Those bejeweled sprinkles have satisfied some unknown hunger within you. Shh, do you smell that? That's the sugary scent of shopping success. For this is Goodwill. And with every item you buy, you fund local job training and more. So go forth. Bring home those donut earrings. And bring home so much good to your community. Goodwill. Bring good home. Brought to you by Goodwill and the Ad Council.
2: This is a CBS News special report.
13: I'm Stacy Lynn. Across the country, Americans are pausing to remember the nearly 3,000 lives lost on 9 11 20 years ago. Outside the Pentagon this morning. Bagpipes played as they prepare to roll out the American flag. In Shanksville, Pennsylvania, 40 lanterns were lit last night to honor those on Flight 93. Cindy Curry was paying tribute to her aunt.
27: It's a beautiful memorial to
10: all of them. And I get overjoyed and, you know, just gratitude, immense gratitude.
13: President Biden with a solemn message on Twitter. May God
7: bless the lives lost on September 11, 2001. And their loved ones were left behind.
13: Mr. Biden will attend a ceremony at the 9-11 Memorial in New York City this morning before heading to Shanksville and the Pentagon. CBS News special report.
8: Live coverage from CBS News of 20 years later, America remembers 9-11 i'm steve kathan in new york soon we'll check in with our correspondents in lower manhattan in washington and in shanksville pennsylvania there are ceremonies there to mark this day there will even be some in cities and towns far from the tragic events that unfolded on 9-11 and we'll check in soon with retired white house correspondent peter mayer was hustled out of that building when it was thought it could be a target Anthony Gardner of New Jersey is with us this morning. He lost his brother Harvey on nine eleven. He worked in the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Twenty years later, Anthony, what
0: goes through your mind today? Well, it's hard to believe that twenty years have passed. I mean, even though you know it's been two decades since Harvey was here with us physically, you know, he's still very much a part of our lives. I have three uh, teenage daughters, and you know they've grown up hearing stories of him and, the kind of person he was and how funny he was and kind and brave. Uh, you know, they of course know his story on nine 11, how he went to work that day and, you know, found himself and trapped in his office with his coworkers. So they've heard the stories of the bravery that he showed uh, in the face of that. and, you know, they have they know about our family's involvement in helping to bring about the 9-11 Memorial Museum over the years and, and advocating for the preservation of the tower footprints, which now serve as the settings for the primary exhibitions and the museum spaces um, at the bedrock level of the site. So this is very much a history that they've grown up with, uh, and I think now as they're getting older, they're starting to understand its place in sort of the context of larger Ah, uh, the larger narrative of American history, and that was one of the things that I took pride in. In from very early on, that Harvey, my brother, loved our country. He took, uh, you know, great interest. He had great interest in American history, and I never lost sight of the fact that he, he became a part of that history that he cherished on nine eleven. And so I've always felt that you know personal sense of obligation to to never forget. Um, I'm, you know, I, I view the 9-11 Memorial Museum as the fulfillment of that promise that we all made as a country 20 years ago to never forget. And I think it underscores the importance of the work that they're doing today to engage future generations like my own children, uh, and the generations that follow them as well, uh, in sharing these stories of not, not only the the people that we died, and the, you know the people who died and the kinds of lives that they lived, but also the stories of hope and resilience uh, that, that that are so integral to this story. You know, it's the, the, the brave responders who are rushing into the burning towers to save people. Um, you know, the, the selfless acts of service of, of thousands and thousands of people who put their lives on hold to come to ground zero in the aftermath to, to help people. So I think, um, you know, these are it, it really underscores the importance of the work that the Memorial is doing today and why why it's so vital that people across the country um, consider supporting the Never Forget Fund, uh, neverforget.org, uh, support this institution. It's built on sacred ground. It's a place that provides a tangible connection to people like Harvey. Uh, but really, beyond that, it, it provides that connection and that reminder of our shared uh, national identity and purpose and um the our capacity for for empathy and and unity and resilience that we demonstrated in the aftermath of 9-11 uh is something that we can still tap into today
8: anthony here's a term that takes us back 20 years a floppy disk uh one from your brother (laughs) maybe even more than 20 uh, maybe so right (laughs) That takes us back. Uh, There is a floppy disk from your brother among the museum's artifacts. Tell us about that.
0: So Harvey, uh, before he took his position at the uh, World Trade Center site, he was debating whether or not to go to culinary school or to go to into an IT training program. He opted for the IT training program. He ended up uh, getting a position at General Telecom, which is why he was at the World Trade Center site that day. But the floppy disk that is currently on view in the memorial's exhibition, it's not only this really interesting sort of artifact that speaks to sort of past technology. I think those of us that are in our you know, 40s and older remember writing papers for school and or resumes like Harvey did and, and saving it on, on floppy disk. So the floppy disk has his resume on it that he used to get his position at General Telecom. And we, our family donated it to the museum because we thought it was a, it was an interesting artifact. You know, it, it spoke to his interest in, in IT and technology. But beyond that, it, it spoke to his commitment throughout his entire life. And it, it was a short life of only 35 years. But throughout his life, he always um, saw himself as a work in progress, like that there was always something new he could learn. and I, And I think that's such a a wise approach um, for, and, a, and, a, and, a, and very instructive, I think, for the rest of us to you know, consider our lives in that way of always looking for ways to, to learn more and improve. And, and so I, that floppy disk to me sort of represents that aspect of my brother's nature.
8: One final thing, Anthony, what about uh, your thoughts about Harvey today? What do you remember most about him? Do you remember talking to him on that day or just beforehand or your last
0: conversation? Uh, when I think of Harvey, I, you know, his, his, his picture is all over my house. Uh, you know, when I travel places, um, I take him with me and um, I just think about how, how much he, you know, he was our, he was 10 years older than me and he was the role model that I looked up to. I mean, he was brave and he was, you know, the protector of our family and, Um, wise beyond his years. And so, you know, quick example, he he studied martial arts and, uh, you know, that was something I followed in his footsteps in the years um, since 9-11. I earned a black belt a couple years ago and dedicated that to him. Um, He's just, 20 years later, he's still somebody that inspires me uh, to be better, to live a better life, um, to be the best that I can be for him.
8: Twenty years later, America remembers
16: 9-11. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker Brought to you by the Ad Council and its Pre-Diabetes Awareness Partners. The following is made possible by Dad.
14: Why was the basketball court all wet? Because the players kept dribbling all over it. <laughs>
3: the Dad Joke. Corny, groan-worthy, but also one of the simplest ways to share a moment with your kids.
14: Why do you have to be careful when it's raining cats and dogs? Because you might step in a poodle.
3: <laughs> and kids that spend more time with their dads
0: grow up to be smarter, more successful.
14: Can I tell you a cat joke? Just kidding.
0: <laughs> and with any luck, funnier adults.
14: Why didn't the skeleton go to the dance? Because he didn't have any body to go with.
3: Dad jokes rule. So take a moment to make a moment and give your kid a laugh. <laughs> It's as easy as going to fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human (laughs) Services and the Ad Council.
27: Uh, It's really funny.
8: 20 years later, America remembers 9-11. It's live coverage from CBS News. As we recall, what it was like as it happened on 9-11 with those who were there. And we're looking at the U.S. response, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the war on terror here and where it's left us now. After a chaotic end to America's longest war, there will be ceremonies at ground zero. Dignitaries are already arriving. New York Governor Kathy Hochul just moments ago. There will be the reading of the names of the victims and events at the Pentagon in Shanksville. And now we're in a post-Afghanistan period. For the first time since 2001, we'll look at how that's changed American strategy as the war on terror has shifted focus more now on domestic threats from extremist groups we'll have more coming up
2: this is a cbs news special report
12: it's been 20 years since the 9-11 attacks for many the memories will never fade for some reason it's much more emotional this year it's hard you know it all comes up This woman lost her husband. Many will head to the 9-11
13: Memorial and Museum in New York City. CBS's Michael George is there.
12: Security will be
0: tight in the city and nationwide as Americans mark two decades since the worst terror attacks on U.S. soil.
13: We feel very confident after assessing our threats that we'll be able to handle the events of this weekend and welcome people from around the world to come to this place of reflection. Marietta, Georgia artist Eric Greenwald showcased his tribute in Shanksville,
12: Pennsylvania.
9: Chalk art by nature is a temporary medium to be enjoyed in the moment. The reaction has just been incredible. I mean, it's just been quite an honor to be able to do this here on site. We've met several of the family
29: members over the last few days who have just been moved some to tears.
12: CBS News Special Report. I'm Lisa Mateo.
8: You're listening to live coverage of Twenty Years Later: America Remembers 9/11 from CBS News. I'm Steve Kathan in New York. We're going to check in with our correspondents who are covering the ceremonies that will take place today to mark the 9/11 attacks. First, let's check in with Cammy McCormick, who whose life has been shaped so much by 9/11. First off, you were there as as events were unfolding on that awful day in New York City.
10: That's right. I I got on the subway. And was evacuated at Times Square. This was after the first building had been hit, the first tower. Um, Everyone was panicked. No one knew what quite was going on. If you were in the subway at the time, obviously, you weren't listening to radio or watching television. So everyone rushed out of the subway. I managed to get a taxi, I I don't know how, and told him to drive south, which really shocked him because he knew something was happening south. Uh, We got all the way down to just a couple of blocks from the World Trade Center. Um, It was quite a scene. Uh, um, I remember the first triage center being set up with doctors and nurses and the disappointment on their faces when no injured showed up. That was the first indication to them that something was horribly wrong, that there might not be any injured. Um, I remember standing in a parking lot and watching the first tower fall. And I was with a group of people and they started yelling very angrily. That was the first time I had heard really anger um expressed that day. As I was standing at the triage center, the firefighters arrived to rescue those their their other firefighters that were in the towers. And I remember one of them rushing past me and yelling, Those are my brothers in there. It was a very emotional time. It, there was a lot of confusion down there, people walking around not knowing exactly what was happening. A lot of businesses, small cafes and restaurants, had set out basically card tables with radios so people could hear what was happening there, Steve.
8: And your life was shaped later by covering the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's not just enough that you had to go through those days of covering those events. It just continued on.
10: Many years in Iraq, um, Afghanistan often called the forgotten war, as we heard from Jeff McCausland a short time ago, talking about how so many opportunities were missed there. It's because the... Attention really turned to removing Saddam Hussein and, and the weapons of mass destruction, if you'll remember. Um, and then many years later in Afghanistan, the, in the I was injured and it was during yet another surge. We had from President Obama to President Biden saying they were going to withdraw or they were going to reduce troops or they were going to surge troops. It was a never ending sort of cycle of war from Iraq to Afghanistan Um, And and now we've seen the end of the war in Afghanistan and combat operations ending in Iraq.
8: All right, Cammie, let's shift to New York City now. CBS's Matt Piper is
9: there for today's events. Good morning, Matt. Hey there, Steve. Good morning. This is where the family members of the fallen come every single year to remember what happened here 20 years ago today, as we walk around, there are uh, still people trickling in. The doors here only open at seven o'clock Eastern time. but there are, of course many, many family members. Uh, they still wear their t-shirts with their loved ones' face implanted on the front of it. On the back of it, you see words you know, like never forget or 9 eleven, 2001. It's something as someone who's been here several times, this is a lot of what you see you know there are, there are people you know sometimes very dressed up, and then there are people who just want to remember their loved one on a t shirt as simple as that uh, There are probably right now maybe about five hundred or so people here, but this is going to be one of the m- major ceremonies of today once this gets underway. There will be six moments of silence here uh, especially, of course, when the towers first were hit by those planes and then when they came down. And they will also remember the other two attacks on this day 20 years ago, Steve. And I'm sure, Matt, security is
8: very tight. You know, we've heard not just this year, but 10 years ago at the 10th anniversary that uh, terrorists were intent on carrying out something big on these anniversaries. Did not develop 10 years ago, but uh, there's certainly... A lot of attention focused on 20 years later. I'm sure security is is very apparent.
9: Absolutely. Just trying to get here. Many of the streets in downtown New York are closed. There are NYPD officers all over the place surrounding me right now. I'm only maybe 100 feet or so from one of these reflecting pools, and you just see CIA CIA agents uh, all over the place. Uh, there are also some dignitaries next to me in line trying to get in here with Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney uh, and her daughter, And, um, you know, there were just there there were two separate places just to try and get in here. And and it was very much they kept saying, pretend like you're at the airport, pretend like you're at the airport, because we had to go through those metal security lines. And then they had uh, the wands to make sure that no one had anything on them. There were bomb sniffing dogs. I had a, a suitcase of equipment to get down here and set up. There was a dog that walked around me to make sure that everything on me was okay. So, yes, security is very tight here as it is every year, especially, of course, because of the fact that the president will be here soon. So, this is certainly a a tight area in terms of security. And I think it really makes family members also just feel, you know, safe on a day like today. You're listening to live coverage 20
8: years later, America remembers 9 11.
17: To some people, The sound of a baby babbling doesn't mean much. But that's not necessarily true. By six months, they're combining vowels and consonants. By nine months, they're trying out different kinds of sounds.
14: And by 12 months, their
17: babbling is beginning to take on some meaning. Especially if there's no babbling at all.
6: public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ed Council.
8: Live coverage of 20 years later, America Remembers 9-11 from CBS News. We'll get back to our correspondents who are covering today's events. Let's remember when this attack on America took place. George W. Bush had been president for only about nine months. And for him, the focus changed from a mostly domestic agenda and uh, became a a war on terror for him. He became what he famously called a war president. With us now is retired CBS News White House correspondent Peter Mayer. Peter, on 9-11 20 years ago, you were at the White House. President George W. Bush was in Florida.
5: That's right. You know, Steve, uh, the White House so often a headline driver on any given day was, you know, really, to be honest, something of a footnote on 9-11. The president, uh, as you noted, was uh, in Florida visiting a school, reading a story to to young kids when his chief of staff, Andrew Card, walked up, very famous picture, whispered in his ear what was happening in New York. Now, I was at my desk in the uh, CBS News office uh, at the White House with uh, my friend and colleague Bill Plant, and like so many others everywhere around the country, we were you know, just stunned by the the video coming in from New York. Uh, How could a plane hit the World Trade Center on a crystal clear early fall day? Uh, But in sharp contrast to that historic whisper down in Florida, the White House, Steve, suddenly became a a frantic scene of shouting by the uniformed Secret Service officers who guard the building. I can close my eyes 20 years later and I can still hear their voices uh, just constant shouting of out, out, everybody out. Um, We, of course, had seen what was happening in New York and it was clear there were, Steve, deep concerns uh, that the White House could be a target at that time.
8: So as you're hustling out of the White House, the story continues to evolve. Of course, certainly what happened in New York was just part of it.
5: Well, that's right. I mean, it, it was a scene verging on chaos when we went outside the White House. People were rushing out of uh, many government and, and corporate office buildings around 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. There were fire trucks and police cars and ambulances uh, racing through the streets, although, you know, there was nothing in, in terms of a disaster in Washington. But in the distance, as I walked out of the White House, just sort of over my left shoulder in a, in a sort of a gap in the, uh, the scene there between the old executive office building and the mall, I could see smoke rising across the Potomac River. We didn't know it at the time, but of course the Pentagon had been hit there uh, way beyond the hallowed buildings of DC across the Potomac. Uh, The massive building was hit by, of course, one of the hijacked aircraft. It was American flight 77. And you know, Steve, as you look back on it, uh, this was the first time that the nation's capital was under attack since the war of 1812. This was the Pearl Harbor uh, of our era.
8: And there were real concerns about whether or not President Bush should return to Washington.
5: Oh, yes. I mean, you know, for a while, the country, uh, White House correspondents and everyone else didn't exactly know where he was. They rushed him out of uh, that Florida school and there began an odyssey of Air Force One flying around to various secure military bases. Uh, uh, I think they made, what, two stops that day at different military bases and he was just itching to get back to Washington. The people in charge, the Secret Service, the military advisors, said, "Not yet. We don't know what's happening in the skies, and we don't know what's happening in Washington." But eventually, of course, he did uh, fly back and uh, make a speech to the nation from the Oval Office.
8: I remember some of your reporting that day, twenty years ago, on nine eleven. You're very calm and you're very reasoned and you're very seasoned. Very hard, I would think, given the nature of events, to remain calm. You did. You told the story briefly, accurately and passionately. But I'm wondering what was going through your head because reporters try to be dispassionate about any story they cover. But you're feeling that the nation is under attack. This is different.
5: Absolutely, you know, from a very highly personal standpoint that we don't go to too often as reporters. Steve, uh, in retrospect, I was in a state of shock that day, just like everyone else. Uh, you know, we—I think we both recall—we we did these CBS uh, Radio News special reports called "Changed Forever." You remember that? Oh no, yeah. And and the nation was changed forever that day. More than anything, we were a nation in mourning, and yes. Uh, As I said, shock and fear and anger in that speech to the country after that unprecedented uh, Air Force One journey from Florida to those secure military bases, the president came back to the White House and he spoke of the nation's, quote, quiet, unyielding anger. Um, Our very hearts and souls were shaken to the core that day, Steve. Skies went silent for days. The nation's air traffic was grounded except for military flights. I know that's the way it was uh, where you were in New York and here in Washington, so eerie in the days after 9-11 to look up at clear blue skies with no aircraft flying in and out of the the normally busy airports. But every so often, you would hear or see a military jet. Uh, Sometimes they were scrambled because of some perceived threat. Everybody was on sort of a a hair trigger that day, and of course— In the the ensuing days, tough security took hold at the airports when air travel did resume. Some of us uh, remember the days when we didn't have to remove our shoes and our coats and our laptops and so forth and go through magnetometers. Uh, Gone forever are and uh, were the days when we just strolled to the gates of airports and uh, our view of the the terror threat, Steve, uh, was dramatically uh, redefined.
8: Retired White House correspondent Peter Mayer, thank you very much. Of course, New York was one attack target. Washington, D.C., the Pentagon outside Washington was another. Shanksville, Pennsylvania was where Flight 93 crashed. Of course, the intended target for that plane was somewhere in Washington. CBS's Jim Chrisula has been to Shanksville over and over again to to mark the events there. He was there on 9-11. Good morning, Jim.
11: Hi, Steve. One of the things that strikes me when you come here is the reverence people have for this piece of landscape. It reminds me, Steve, of the Vietnam Wall in Washington, D.C., in that for the most part, people are very quiet. They're very reflective as as they walk these grounds, as they look at the 17-ton boulder Beside a grove of hemlock trees that marks the spot where Flight 93 came crashing down. They estimated about 560 miles per hour. There was a massive explosion. The ground shook. When the plane hit, it uh, left a crater of about 40 uh, foot deep crater. This is soft land. At one time, it was a strip mine. In fact, as you come out to this location, you see uh, additional newer strip mines that are now popping up around this area that's considered by many to be sacred ground, Steve.
8: Twenty years later, America remembers. Sweet strawberry
28: icing. You were strolling along in goodwill when just past that mid-century side table and denim jacket, you spotted them nestled in their display case miniature donut earrings oh yes yes your favorite half breakfast pastry half all day dessert food made into your favorite form of ear candy oh my those bejeweled sprinkles have satisfied some unknown hunger within you do you smell that that's the sugary scent of shopping success for this is goodwill And with every item you buy, you fund local job training and more. So go forth. Bring home those donut earrings. And bring home so much good to your community. Goodwill. Bring good home. Brought to
16: you by Goodwill and the Ad Council. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy. Your football buddy. Or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihabprediabetes.org. That's doihabprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its Pre-Diabetes Awareness Partners.
2: This is a CBS News Special Report.
13: I'm Stacey Lynn. Twenty years ago, two planes crashed into the World Trade Center's Twin Towers in New York. One rammed into the Pentagon. Another slammed into a field in Pennsylvania. The president visiting all three sites today. WCBS's Tony Aiello. The
1: president of the United States will be
8: on this memorial plaza later this morning, but he will not speak. The focus today is rightly on the families and on the events of 9-11.
13: WSB's Robin Lowalensky on how they're remembering the victims of Flight 93 in Shanksville. An
4: artist from Marietta, Georgia, and chalk artists from across the country bringing the faces of the 40 victims of Flight 93 alive. The colored drawings,
13: three by five on the ground at the entrance to the memorial. It has gotten to me more than anything I've seen so far. Later today, Mr. Biden will attend a wreath laying at the Pentagon. CBS News Special Report.
8: It's live coverage from CBS News 20 years after the 9-11 attacks. Those attacks changed so many lives forever from the victims whose lives were cut short to their families who have coped with loss right up to this day. It put men and women in uniform in danger in Afghanistan and later Iraq. A heavy price has been paid by a lot of people in the time since 9-11. We're going to hear about that day, how it changed from a sunny, nice September morning into something no one could ever imagine. My colleague Allison Keyes was in New York City on 9-11.
20: WCBS reporter Allison Keyes nearly got hit by the falling debris just a little while ago uh, after the uh, collapse of that one tower about 15 minutes ago. And she joins us live now on the line. Allison, what's going on now? I'm
4: standing at the corner of Fulton and Dutch where it is clear just about enough for you to see the sky it was a gorgeous 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 day and i called in to see what my assignment was going to be because they didn't have anything for me yet and as i was walking across my living room in brooklyn i saw the first plane hit the tower i dropped my coffee and ran for the car i got to the brooklyn bridge and there were firefighters and other first responders in cars already dashing across the bridge i waved my mic flag at the police officer at the bridge and he waved me across i parked in front of city hall and ran for the towers there were people running everywhere and screaming and crying and nobody quite knew what was going on oh i forgot to mention in the while i was in the middle of the bridge i called my mom to tell her that i was okay and told her where i was going and she heard the second plane hit and my phone went dead so my parents thought that i was dead for hours Anyway, I parked my car and I ran over to the trade center and could not believe what I was seeing besides the flames and the smoke coming out of the towers. There were people jumping out of windows because they weren't going to be able to get past the fires. They were above the fires. I saw some people holding hands. And people just stood in the street screaming. It was it was awful. And, of course, being a reporter, I'm going, okay, I can't cry. I can't cry. I'm not going to die today. It's going to be okay. I was standing in the block right under Tower 2, and it collapsed. The whole ground shook. It felt like the world shook. And I turned around, and I saw the building coming at us. And I screamed run and turned around and ran. And there are all these people running and we're running, running, running. And then I got caught in the debris field and all of a sudden I couldn't breathe. I inhaled and it was like inhaling dirt because there was no air. So I couldn't see and I'm banging on windows. I, I think I might have been on Fulton Street maybe trying to find an open door to get in because I couldn't breathe. And finally somebody opened a door and I ended up in a stairwell with all of these other people who were crying, obviously, and panic-stricken. And I was coughing my guts out and my pager was going off and I couldn't talk. So somebody in the stairwell gave me some water, so I drank some water. And I took a breath and went outside to see what was going on. This, I had dropped my phones running. I found a pay phone and called into my job, and I was hysterical because they were saying, okay, we're going to put you on the air, and I kept saying, no, you have to call my mother. My mother is going to think I'm dead. You have to call my mother. There were doctors that had come from the hospitals nearby and first responders, and somebody poured water over my face because I was so crusted with everything I couldn't see. So I'm interviewing people, and everyone's terrified, and it was clear by then that it had, been, it, it had been an attack, and everyone was worried that more planes were coming. I was watching firefighters running into the other tower, and it collapsed while they were running inside. It was the worst thing that I have seen ever in my life before or since. So if I stayed, I don't really know how many hours talking to people and firefighters and people who couldn't go home and people were heading for the bridge in tears. The one thing, though, that I remember the most is that the city and the nation were united in a way that I have never seen or felt since then, Then it's a terrible, terrible thing that I have not seen or felt it since then. I thought I was going to die. But I didn't. And I'm so sorry for those who did and for the ones that have been dying since then that are sick. The nation needs to always remember and never forget.
8: It's Allison Keys remembering back to 20 years ago in New York City. She was in the thick of it as things were happening. Terrible things were happening. This morning, it's a lot like it was 20 years ago before things took a terrible turn. Sunny, beautiful day. You hear the water in the World Trade Center Memorial. Two pools, of course, there in the imprint of the Twin Towers dignitaries have been arriving and uh, not much social distancing going on it's a crowd of people former governor of new york george pataki the current governor kathy Hochul, is there the attorney general of the united states merrick garland also has been spotted there nancy pelosi speaker of the house saw rudy giuliani there as well not wearing a mask but there for the ceremonies
29: Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward, and freedom will be defended.
2: Twenty years later, CBS News looks back on the changes still affecting all
3: of us. We are now looking at flames shooting out of the north side of a uh, number one World Trade Center, but there are at least some windows uh, blown out and smoke billowing out of the opposite side. Oh my God, another plane has just hit, it hit
4: another building.
2: Remembering the day we will never forget.
4: People are streaming out of lower Manhattan, a major exodus here. People stopped and turned around as they watched a the whole top corner of the building of one of the towers tumble.
5: We're outside the White House, which is now being evacuated.
2: Smoke, uh, black and gray, still
6: pouring out of the Pentagon.
2: And looking to the future. The World Trade Center is still claiming lives. People have had their lives shortened. We can't
7: afford to forget not only the individuals but but their collective actions on that day.
2: This is CBS News special coverage 9/11 America remembers. Here's correspondent Steve Kathan. And good
8: morning from New York City. We're going to look back 20 years to the attack on America at the World Trade Center, the Pentagon and the crash of Flight 93 in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. We'll recall what it was like as it happened on 9-11 with those who were there. We'll look at the U.S. response, the war on terror, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And through it all, we're going to pay tribute to the victims. 3,000 died on that awful day, leaving sadness that touched thousands more. An event that galvanized the nation, at least for a time. It's impacted all of our lives in some way or another with increased security. And a feeling that we've been changed forever by what happened. Let's begin this morning where the attacks began 20 years ago today in New York City. CBS's Matt Piper is in lower Manhattan where people are arriving. Matt, good morning.
9: Hey Steve, good morning. We have heard from a choir singing America the Beautiful. We have heard bagpipes as family members and loved ones and dignitaries still pour in here. Now this is obviously going to be a major day here the ceremony will pause at six moments acknowledging when each of the world trade center towers was struck and fell as well as the time corresponding to the attack on the pentagon and the plane going down in pennsylvania now during those moments of silence here houses of worship have been asked to tell their bells at that time now this is going to obviously last several hours that first moment of silence will come in about 45 minutes 8:46 a.m is when American Airlines Flight 11 struck the North Tower. So there are lots of family members here, many holding signs of their loved ones 20 years later, some in T-shirts with photos of their loved one on that T-shirt. And of course, as you mentioned, dignitaries as well, including Congresswoman and later the President, Steve. So this is certainly uh, uh, just a day for people to remember and reflect. And it's, it's certainly a somber scene here, as it is most years.
8: President Biden is beginning his day there. We're going to check in with Jim Crisula. The president will end up in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And so will former President George W. Bush. He will be there. Jim has been to Shanksville many times. He covered the attack aftermath after 9-11. He's been there several times to mark the occasion. And he's there again for us this morning. Hi, Jim.
11: Hi again, Steve. I spent some time yesterday about five miles from this site where Flight 93 crashed at the Shanksville Fire Department. They were the first responders here 20 years ago. And several of the firemen who responded to the Flight 93 crash told me that they think about it just about every day and have thought about it just about every day the past 20 years. They related to me a helpless feeling when they got here, Steve, that They quickly realized there was no one that they were going to save. In fact, you couldn't even tell that an airplane had crashed here. There were really very few signs of an airplane itself that had crashed. I'll always remember, Steve, after I arrived here the evening of September 11th, 20 years ago, at about 7, maybe 7.30 in the evening, I was able to talk my way into the crash site very briefly I went with a fireman in his pickup truck, and I'll always remember the sight. It was illuminated. There was still smoke coming out of the ground. It looked like an angry earth, I think is how I described it. There was still a very strong scent of jet fuel, aviation fuel. And again, Steve, very little indication that what you were looking at was a plane crash because there was just nothing to see in terms of big pieces of the plane.
8: Jim Krasula on the scene in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where there will be ceremonies today. Cammie McCormick is with us. Her job on 9-11 was to tell the tale of the attacks on New York City. She's covered the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and reports from the
10: Pentagon. Cammie, good morning. Good morning. At the Pentagon this morning, there will be a moment of silence at 9.37. This is when the plane, American Airlines Flight 77, hit the side of this massive building. The last communication with this plane was at 8.51. That was about 35 minutes after it took off from Dulles Airport in northern Virginia. Its transponder was turned off. Uh, It was difficult for air traffic controllers to track it. At one point... The tower at Reagan National Airport told the Secret Service Operations Center the plane was headed right for it, but then it changed direction. They had other planes following it. I mean, Its destination, clearly the Pentagon, it spiraled into this building, smashing through three layers of the building's five wings in eight-tenths of a second. It's estimated there were about 18,000 people working in the building at the time, 184 lives lost, One hundred twenty five inside the building. First responders arrived. But before they arrived at the building, a lot of people who worked inside the Pentagon rushed to help, including then Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, who remained in the building for the rest of the day, Steve. And even though you're
8: focusing on the Pentagon today, Cammy, certainly you have to be thinking about what you saw in New York
10: 20 years ago. And the months that followed, you know, we're talking about what a beautiful day it is in the Northeast this morning like it was on that day. I remember when I got out of the taxi down at Ground Zero, they had just announced on the radio that all air traffic control over the country had been halted. And as soon as I got out of the car, I heard a plane. And I was terrified that it was a, a, yet another plane coming to attack us. And in, in fact, it was a military jet. And at that point, I felt some relief because you could tell it it was a jet. Uh, But things changed in New York so dramatically. I remember how quiet it was for so long, for weeks. I remember hearing the first taxi honk its horn several weeks after 9-11 and being so startled by that because it had been so quiet. And for so many weeks and months afterwards, every time a plane would fly overhead, especially on a clear day, New Yorkers would look up and 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 feel a little bit of fear.
8: indeed. Uh, I remember on that day uh, a cop on every corner, just about three hours after uh, the attacks took place, and a line of emergency vehicles just waiting, to, and this is miles away. We're miles away in the broadcast center here in New York from from nine from the nine eleven attack site. but uh, a line of emergency vehicles waiting to go downtown. Cami, thanks very much. 343 firefighters died on 9-11, including a chaplain and two paramedics, as they responded to the horrific scene at the World Trade Center.
7: Somebody gave an urgent, and next thing we know, we're just dragging some people. I came down with two
22: guys. I was shaving my mask with two other guys. And we just made it out. We made it out here.
30: The tower blew.
22: A lot of familiar names here. James Dowdell is here at the 9-11 Memorial touching his dad's name on the bronze parapet.
24: I do look at this place. My father's body was never recovered from here, so there is a piece of it that I think is sacred. Kevin Dowdell was an FDNY lieutenant. James followed in his
22: footsteps.
24: My father was in Rescue too when he was a fireman, where I am now. Um, I always thought it was pretty cool. I got pictures of uh, of me and... In our old firehouse on Bergen Street when I was a kid and then to work there and have pictures with my kids in the same spot, it is a, it's definitely something I'm proud of. Kings is 36
22: and joined the department 15 years ago.
24: Every major event in my life that's happened has happened since 9-11, from graduating high school to becoming a fireman, a father, graduating college, everything.
22: He misses his dad personally and professionally.
24: You know, he I ha- had a good fire, and and I know he would have, you know, he would have been a great person to talk to, but I don't get to talk to him. Um, those are the hard times. And he's trying to pass along the same values his dad imbued in him. Hard work pays off. Doing the right thing, even when no one's around. You know, telling the truth, being loyal, being courteous. James,
22: his brother and his mom have persevered.
24: My father left, uh, died, but. Our family has stayed the course, and uh, we've tried to remember his values that he's taught us, that my mother has instilled in us, and we've just tried to not let that day change us or define us.
22: At the 9-11 Memorial, Peter Haskell for CBS News New York. With
8: us now is our CBS News colleague, Mara Rubin. Twenty years ago, she was a reporter for New York City radio station WOR. You and other reporters began that day covering politics, political primaries. You were at a school strike.
12: Right, I was sent to the Upper East Side for the Catholic teacher's school strike and I had called into the station to file a report and the news director told me that a plane hit the North Tower, get down there as fast as I can. But I had taken a cab to the Upper East Side so I was like, okay, how do I get there really fast? But um, on the scene there was... A colleague of mine from my first job, um, he was working for a TV station here now, and he said, hey, we'll give you a lift hop in the the van. So we're in the back of the um, TV truck and we're watching the videos of the actual plane hitting the North Tower. And then while we're watching, we see a plane hit the South Tower. And at this point we're like, oh, maybe this isn't an accident. I think this is a little more serious or a little more sinister than we had thought. And we just rushed, raced down to the World Trade Center site.
8: So you're covering a fairly benign story on the one hand, and now you're racing to what will be the story of your life. And every reporter who's covering it, this is suddenly a lot different. It's a totally different story When you get there, you know you're going to have to describe things on the air. Very tough to do. What was your first thought when you got there, seeing what you had seen in that van?
12: Well, I didn't know what was happening. I know what I saw. And then as soon as we got down there, we parked on the West Side Highway because we couldn't get further than that to get to the World Trade Center. It had been already blocked off by that point. So we're trying to inch closer, inch closer. And I'm asking people that are running away from the building because that's what everyone did. Everyone was just running away from that area. So they're running up the West side highway and I'm facing South at the world trade center. And I'm interviewing people. What did you see? What did you hear? What happened? And as I'm doing that, you know, that you see a flame, you you see a hole in the building. That's, you know, from my distance, what I could see. And then all of a sudden I'm talking to someone interviewing them and I see someone actually jump and I'm like, Oh my God, Oh my God, someone's jumping and I'm on the air live interviewing this person. And I like totally cut her off. And I'm like in disbelief. I mean, I don't know what happened to that person, but we could all, imagine what happened to that person. But from my vantage point, I could just see them floating and falling. I couldn't see them hit the ground. But I will never, ever forget that image that I saw.
8: And you have to describe that and other things that you're seeing on the air. Very difficult to tell people what's going on in a chaotic situation.
12: Well, I wasn't really thinking about the bigger picture. I was just describing what I was seeing. It wasn't really hitting me what was happening and it wasn't really thinking further than that moment. For example, my father worked at, um, at water street downtown. He would take the New Jersey transit in the morning to Newark and then take the path to the world trade center and get out. Like I wasn't even conscious of this. Oh my God. Is my dad. Okay. Like I wasn't even thinking about that. And I didn't until I later was able to like, you know, think things through at that point, I'm just going on adrenaline and I'm just describing what I'm seeing and I'm not thinking past and the ramifications of what, you know, could be happening bigger around me.
8: Now you were there and others too. when mayor Giuliani got to the scene and made some comments. What was that like?
12: Well, I was, ushered into a building when, um, the South tower collapsed. I mean, the tower collapsed, it vaporizes. You see in all the pictures and replays, you know, the big plume of smoke and debris raining down and people rushing and running. So I was one of those people running and rushing because you have police on the ground saying, get out of here, run away from the building, get inside. So what I did was I followed the crowd and I ran into a building and I was in a lobby with, um, other scared people. We didn't know what was happening. We didn't know anybody in that building. It was dark. It had lost power and I'm in there and I'm thinking, you know what? I don't want to stay here. I'm not supposed to stay here. I'm supposed to be reporting. I'm supposed to, I have a job to do. I have to get out and I don't want to die in this building. So I leave the lobby. I have to fight with the security guard because he didn't want to let me out because he thinks it's unsafe out there. And it was unsafe out there because there at that point there was one missing plane we didn't know where it was going we just knew that one other plane was hijacked and that's the one which landed in shanksville so um i finally convinced him to let me out so i walk out of the building and i walk right into mayor giuliani and the fire commissioner and the police commissioner and i'm like okay if anyone in the city knows where to go where to be safe these three do and i just stay with them until
15: they figured it out, and we went to a hotel. All that we know right
6: yes. now is that two airplanes struck the two large towers of the World Trade Center. What about
8: memories of that day, Mara? Aside from the 20th anniversary where we're all thinking about it, uh, just on an ordinary day, do, you, do images of that day come back? Does it show up in your dreams?
12: You know, after it first happened, it did. It doesn't now. I think I kind of pushed it out of my mind. And I don't talk about it. And I don't try not to think about it. But when the anniversary comes up and we are talking about it, then um, then I think about it. And it, it is really hard. It is really hard.
8: Our colleague, Mara Rubin, remembering that awful day in New York City. Today in New York, it's sunny. People are arriving for the ceremonies that are going to unfold Throughout the week, people have been descending on Lower Manhattan to visit the 9-11 Memorial. CBS's Bradley Blackburn caught up with some of them.
17: We're here to pay our respect to all our friends and our co-workers and everybody else, all the innocent lives that were taken that day.
6: Iowa firefighter Nate Smith came to New York to honor the victims.
31: Just to kind of pay tribute to fallen brothers and sisters. um, It's pretty emotional.
6: Yesterday, a candlelight service was held near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where United Airlines Flight 93 went down. It's a beautiful memorial to all of them, and it seems like yesterday that it happened. A beam of light now shines into the sky over the Pentagon. More than 125 people died when a hijacked plane slammed into the building on 9-11. President Biden will attend memorial events at all three locations today, starting right here at the site of the World Trade Center. The President and First Lady Jill Biden arrived in New York City late last night.
8: Mr. Biden will not be speaking at any of today's memorials, but he will be attending. He delivered his 9-11 message last night in a video released by the White House.
7: On this 9-11, like every 9-11, I'm thinking about my friend Davis, who I grew up with in Delaware. On this day 20 years ago, he and his family had just passed the first year without their youngest of three sons, Teddy, who died in a boating accident at age 15. And his eldest son, Davis Jr., was just six days into the new job on the 104th floor of the South Tower, the World Trade Center. Davis went straight to ground zero to search for his son. he searched deep into the last ending of hope as he put it a few days later i spoke with davis and talked to his fathers who know i was on my way to speak to the students at the university of delaware about what to make of the new world we're in he told me to tell people quote don't be afraid he said tell them don't be afraid The absolute courage it took after two unimaginable losses is extraordinary. Yet the most ordinary of American things to know life can be unfair and uncertain, a cruel twist of accident or deliberate act of evil. But even in darkness, to still be the light. To the families of the 2,977 people from more than 90 nations, Killed on September 11th, 2001, in New York City, Arlington, Virginia, and Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and the 1,000 more who were injured. America and the world commemorate you and your loved ones, the pieces of your soul. We honor all those who risked and gave their lives in the minutes, hours, months, and years afterwards. The firefighters, police officers, EMTs and construction workers and doctors and nurses, faith leaders, service members, veterans, and all of the everyday people who gave their all to rescue, recover, and rebuild. But it's so hard, whether it's the first year or the 20th. Children have grown up without parents, and parents have suffered without children. Husbands and wives have had to find ways forward without their parents partners in their life with them, brothers and sisters, uncles and aunts, loved ones and friends have had to celebrate birthdays and milestones with a hole in their heart. No matter how much time has passed, and these commemorations bring everything painfully back, as if you just got the news a few seconds ago. And so on this day, Jill and I hold you close in our hearts and send you our love There are people around the world that you'll never know who are suffering through their own losses, who see you, your courage. Your courage gives them courage that they, too, can get up and keep going. We hope that 20 years later, the memory of your beloved brings a smile to your lips, even while still bringing a tear to your eye. The days that followed September 11th, 2001, we saw heroism everywhere in places expected and unexpected. We also saw something all too rare, a true sense of national unity, unity and resilience, the capacity to recover and repair in the face of trauma, unity and service. The 9-11 generation stepping up to serve and protect in the face of terror, to get those terrorists who are responsible, to show everyone seeking to do harm to America that we will hunt you down and we will make you pay that will never stop today, tomorrow, ever from protecting America. Yet we also witness the darker forces of human nature, fear and anger, resentment and violence against Muslim Americans, true and faithful followers of a peaceful religion. We saw a national unity bend. We learned that unity is the one thing that must never break. Unity is what makes us who we are, America at its best. To me, that's the central lesson of September 11th, is that at our most vulnerable, in the push and pull of all that makes us human, in the battle for the soul of America, unity is our greatest strength. Unity doesn't mean we have to believe the same thing. We must have a fundamental respect and faith in each other and in this nation. We are unique in the history of the world, because we're the only nation based on an idea, an idea that everyone is created equal and should be treated equally throughout their lives. That is the task before us, to once again lead not just by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. And I know we can, for I know hope is not simply an expectation. Hope is a conviction. Hope allows us to act with courage, To act and honor those we lost 20 years ago and those who have given their whole souls to the cause of this nation every day since. To act and build a future, not a reactionary one or one based on fear, but a future of promise, strength, and grace worthy of their dreams and sacrifice. And to act and keep the faith that while life is fragile, it is truly something wonderful. We find strength in its broken places, as Hemingway wrote. We find light in the darkness. We find purpose to repair, renew, and rebuild. And as my friend told me that September 20 years ago, we must not be afraid. May God bless you all. May God bless the lives lost on September 11th, 2001, and their loved ones who were left behind. May
8: God protect our troops. The President of the United States, Joe Biden, with a video message released by the White House. Our White House correspondent, Stephen Portnoy, is traveling with the President throughout the day today. He joins us now. Hello, Stephen.
32: Good morning, Steve. I I just have to underscore what an incredibly beautiful, picture-perfect day it is here in lower Manhattan. Sunny skies, 64 degrees, not a cloud in the sky. Sort of poetic when you think about it, how it was 20 years ago today. Here at the 9-11 Memorial and Museum, the President is here. He's here with the First Lady. He arrived here in New York last night. The President right now is meeting with two of his predecessors, Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, and their wives. And we expect in just about 10 minutes the President is going to emerge with the First Lady and begin taking part in some of the commemorations here, particularly the moment of silence at 8:46.
8: Stephen Portnoy with the president. Of course, Secret Service agents are at work today protecting the president and others. They were at work in Washington and in Florida where President George W. Bush was on 9-11. They had some important decisions to make. They had to improvise in a situation that was fraught with uncertainty. Here's CBS's Jeff Pegues.
6: In this now iconic moment from 9-11, President Bush is informed of the attack by his chief of staff, Andy Card. Eddie Marenzel is off to his right. When I saw the look on the president's face, I knew that there was something that was bad. He was the lead Secret Service agent on the president's detail. And with the 9-11 attack in progress, his mission became getting the president out of that elementary school classroom and onto Air Force One as quickly as possible. We did a very steep takeoff. Why was that? Our idea was to, you know, hide in the sky until we could figure out what was what was going on. Fighter jets escorted Air Force One, protecting the president from any possible attack. Onboard Air Force One, Renzel, Card, and a military aide huddled, deciding who was going to tell the commander-in-chief that Secret Service supervisors had determined that it was too dangerous to return to Washington. Don't bring them back. It's too unsettled. We don't know what else is out there. And so you said as far away from Washington as possible at this point? I said to the president, we have come up with a plan that we could go to Barksdale Air Force Base, regroup and find out what's going on. I was working the uh, afternoon shift that day. Stephen Stashik, who was off duty, began running toward the White House. Everybody just showed up. No one had to be told to come in. Nick Trotta was with the First Lady on Capitol Hill before evacuating her to Secret Service headquarters. We perform a role, and that role is really to evacuate and to provide that safety. At the White House, Tony Zotto was ordered by his supervisor to rush Vice President Dick Cheney down into the White House bunker, where a military aide told him... Yet another hijacked plane was incoming.
23: He said, uh, Mr. Vice President, we have a plane coming down through Pennsylvania, down the Potomac direction. It's a hijacked plane. We need your authorization to take it down. And he said, is it a confirmed hijack? And the the officer said, yes, sir, it is. He just said, okay, take it down.
6: Flight 93 was not shot down. It crashed after the passengers and crew fought back against the hijackers.
8: While some firefighters and first responders who raced to the burning towers on 9-11 or sifted through the rubble in the aftermath suffer trauma to this day. Our CBS News Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. John LaPook, on a program that's helped nearly 20,000 responders and survivors.
6: Firefighter Brian Bonsignor spent six months working recovery at Ground Zero. His GPS unit marked the exact location of victims' remains. So we come home
23: at the end of the day and you have the smell of death on you. Uh, your
6: shoes, your pores, of your skin, your hair. Bonsignor developed asthma and PTSD. <laughs> 9-11 anniversaries trigger those PTSD symptoms. You become very sharp with
23: people. You become very distanced with people. I dealt with it by dissociating myself from it, from TVs, newspaper events, and if if you
6: relive it, it just piles on and piles on and piles on and piles on. Dr. Sandra Lowe directs mental health services for the World Trade Center Health Program at Mount Sinai.
21: Some individuals are actually having what we call their anniversary reactions earlier than usual. For some people, it's because this anniversary happens to be coming in the context of a pandemic
31: so it's a confluence of events
21: yeah absolutely Um, some patients started isolating more uh, during the pandemic and having a really hard time actually uh, mobilizing themselves
6: this 20th anniversary coming on the heels of the pandemic is even triggering first-time mental health issues
21: we had eight new patients coming in and all of them needed uh, psychiatric treatment
6: For you, the memories are so vivid, but do you think for some others that the memories are fading too quickly and that they don't really appreciate? I think so. I think that it should be talked about, you know, what they did. They gave their life, not me. And honoring that sacrifice could be another path to healing. Dr. John Lepook, CBS News,
8: New York. Right around this time, 20 years ago, American Airlines Flight 11 was in the sky. It hit the North Tower of the World Trade Center at 8.46 a.m., a Boston to L.A. flight. 76 passengers, 11 crew all died. A moment of silence, and the New York program of events will begin very shortly. We'll go there in just a minute. But first, let's check to the Pentagon uh, ceremonies today, which will happen a little bit after that. CBS's Cammy McCormick is with us. Hi, Cammy.
10: Hi, Steve. Yeah, they'll be marking the moment of silence—the minute that the flight crashed into the west side of the Pentagon at nine thirty-seven this morning. The ceremony will be much the same as it has been in past years. We'll hear from the Defense Secretary, the Joint Chiefs Chairman. They will lay a wreath, and taps will be played. The names of the victims—one hundred eighty-four people—will be read. And the ceremony is being kept just to the, the families of those who were lost. They will later be allowed into the memorial, which is has been closed for several months now security is very tight that might be due to the fact that the president and the vice president are expected here later today to lay a wreath but are not expected to make remarks steve
8: cammy thanks in new york city a big crowd of people has yes, turned up there and uh, people are holding pictures high of people who died on 9-11 cbs's matt piper is in lower
9: manhattan for us today hello matt Hey, Stephen, when you say a big crowd, we're talking a big crowd. I just spoke to an official here. They're expecting 10,000 people here. They invite family members of the fallen, and those family members are able to invite as many people as they want. So you might have you know, a, a wife or a son of one family, and then another family may have invited 15 or 20 other family members to this site. So this is certainly a huge, huge event here. In moments at 840 Eastern is when the FDNY, NYPD, and the Honor Guard and the Bagpipe and Drummers' processional starts. And then there will be the Star Spangled Banner performed by the Young People's Choir of New York. And let me tell you, there was a choir here just uh, maybe 20 minutes ago singing, and they sounded just wonderful. It's another gorgeous day. We hear so often how that day 20 years ago was just a crisp, clear, clear no cloud in the sky day and that's exactly how it is here today steve
8: matt we'll get back to you very shortly as the ceremonies will get underway several cbs news staffers were on the ground on 9-11 most of them seldom talk about it especially publicly but for this anniversary 20 years cameraman mark laganga and audio technician john Bo whites share their experiences from
33: 9-11 It's actually a beautiful day. I remember uh, the blue sky was pretty striking.
31: Clearest blue sky, sunny. The beginning taste of fall in the air. We understand
3: that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan.
33: My name is Mark Leganga. Nine Eleven. I worked for CBS News as a cameraman.
31: We pulled up, and I would say. Within 20 minutes or so, the first tower fell with the sound of a crashing freight train.
33: Beau White's is my sound partner for the day. We're told a small plane crashed into one of the buildings, but we didn't know any details other than that.
25: What
3: happened? The roof. Something came in. It collapse. I need some water. Sit down. Okay. Right, sit down.
30: Sit down. What? The uh, building collapsed, part of the building collapsed. Uh-huh.
31: It got immensely quiet after the first tower fell. And I remember law enforcement, fire, fighters, telling us to stay back. Mark said, wait here, and he ran in.
14: must be so going in there, bro, get out! I can't see! I'm working, I'm There's
22: a woman in a wheelchair and... And uh, I got her in the strap wheelchair and just carried her down the steps and carried her down.
33: <laughs> 68 floors, man. After the first building came down, there's very little color in anything that you're looking at. Even the shrubs and the greenery is all gray.
31: I remember the crackling of the fire looking up at the second tower. And then
33: I remember as it started to come down. It sounded like jets were flying overhead, so I just tilted up to see them, to videotape them. And it wasn't jets, it was the tower was coming down. I knew the smoke was coming towards me, but the reason you don't turn and drop the camera, run away, is you're there to document what happened.
3: and then ran like hell, thank God. I'm 69, but I can still run. <laughs> There's gotta be fireman trap back there though.
31: When the second tower fell, I thought that LaGanga had probably bought it. That uh, That was it. And I was thinking about having to speak with his wife about that. But I remained hopeful and I moved forward to find him. And at some point, Mark came walking out, covered head to toe with the dust of the tower and a gash on his forehead. But he came out, and we washed him off
33: and kept going.
6: Why don't we get you into uh, Stuyvesant High School? It's a block
33: There are people who did amazing things that day. I literally just videotaped what they were doing. No, yes. I, I I, don't know how to answer that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone that was there that day doesn't feel guilty that they were able to go home. People went towards the building to save people. I just videotaped, so I feel pretty guilty about that. I really don't think he can indict
31: himself for doing his job that day. I think he did a service to us all by continuing to go forward.
33: I hope we're all a little bit better, because we're able to see what people do in that kind of situation. And all I saw was people helping each other. I never saw anything else.
31: There was a time immediately after the towers fell when there was a cohesiveness in the city.
33: You could feel it. still the greatest city, I mean, I know Sounds glib to say that, but I mean, it is, with COVID, with 9-11, with everything that's happened in the city, it just, it continually reinvents itself.
8: Some of the stories of 9-11. Right now, in lower Manhattan, the president of the United States, Joe Biden, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton also just arriving for today's ceremonies. They're greeting other politicians, wearing masks, cell phone cameras are snapping. A lot of pictures being taken in this big crowd of people. They're all shaking hands as they've arrived. CBS's Matt Piper is covering that for us
9: today. Hello, Matt. Hey there, Steve. I can see President Biden maybe about... 70 or 80 feet away from where we are. He just walked in probably in the last three minutes or so, as you said. And yes, I can see a sea of people. All you see are are, are really a lot of people with their phones up into the sky trying to catch a glimpse of the president and of the former presidents as well. So many people died here on that day, Steve. 2,753 people were killed here in New York 20 years ago. Many of their family members are here today, as many as 10,000 of them is what the World Trade Center people here were expecting. Many, many people here.
8: We expect a musical performance to start shortly, the Star-Spangled Banner, before we hear the moment of silence. Matt, uh, always surprised at uh, the outpouring and uh, the emotion that is shown on this day, and it's not like any other anniversary, really. 20 years is a significant moment, and uh, as you've said earlier, this crowd is enormous today.
9: It's an enormous crowd. And, you know, 10 years ago for the marking 10 years since the attack is when the Memorial Museum was opened here. Uh, That's another big part of what's down here in lower Manhattan. There have been about 18 million visitors to the museum. And as for the outside of this, where you see those reflecting ponds and those cascading walls of waterfalls, 52 million visitors have been here in the last 10 years from about 200 countries from around the world. You've seen the names etched ...around those pools for anyone who's ever seen it on TV or has been here in New York for themselves. And something that I learned years ago was that when you see a flower over top of one of those names etched into that marble, it's their birthday today. And walking in here, I must have seen at least 20 of them or so for those who were killed, whose birthday it is today. So it's someone's job every day of the year to come out here and lay a white flower on the name of the person who was killed if it's their birthday.
8: President Biden and other dignitaries are waiting for the ceremony to begin in New York. An American flag is being brought down a sidewalk. A drummer, a couple of drummers behind those people walking into the area. We're about to get started here in New York City. A moment of silence will happen at 8.46 a.m. That's when the North Tower was struck. American Airlines Flight 11. Matt Piper's there. He's been uh, covering the events leading up to this. Matt, uh, I'm interested if you've had a chance to talk with any family members. I know that's sometimes a sensitive thing to do. Uh, Some are willing to talk. Some aren't. Many, as as you say, do gather where the names of their relatives are at the uh, memorial. Have you had a chance to
9: talk to anybody about that? You know, being trekked in here, I I had to get to to my spot, Uh, but we do uh, have a colleague here who has spoken to some family members, and I was speaking to her a a moment ago. Not only did she speak to to some of the family members who are here, many of them holding signs of their loved ones, but she also uh, spoke to uh, Frank Siller, who is the Tunnel to Towers. And for anyone who's not familiar, that is uh, a, a run walk that starts in another borough, and you go through one of the tunnels, here in new york city and many firefighters actually did that run that day in full gear so it's to honor what many of them did that day and and so that that gentleman's here as well and there's he's now uh, a foundation uh, he has a foundation that many people i'm sure have, have seen and heard the commercials uh, but but in terms of the family members steve you're right uh, some some of them want to talk some of them have photos of their loved ones and then others, you can just see it in their eyes that even 20 years later, it's just so, so painful for them. A procession
8: bringing in the American flag. You might hear the drum beats in the background. A crowd surrounding the American flag as it's held up by several firefighters, police officers there too.
9: And, Steve, I will say that. Oh, what's this name?
8: The National Anthem at Ground Zero in New York City, sung there by the Young People's Chorus of New York City. They were wearing masks during the performance. Now the American flag is being brought out as you hear bagpipers and drummers accompanying This 9-11 ceremony going on in New York City. We're about to hear the moment of silence and the reading of the names beginning. CBS's Cammie McCormick along with us today.
10: Steve, uh, this is a very difficult anniversary, too, for veterans in this country. So many fought in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we've heard from military leaders over the last few days that they acknowledge that pain. That these were a lot of millions of Americans, airmen, sailors, soldiers, Marines, who served for years in these wars.
8: The tattered, a flag from 9-11 being brought away from the area now. Ringing the bells.
30: Silence
19: the moment of silence we just shared marks the very moment 20 years ago that American Airlines flight 11 flew into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. My name is Mike Lowe and my daughter Sarah Elizabeth Lowe was a flight attendant on that plane. These 20 years have felt like both a long time and a short time. And as we recite the names of those we lost, my memory goes back to that terrible day when it felt like an evil specter had descended on our world. But it was also a time when many people acted above and beyond the ordinary. Beginning with the actions of the flight crews like Sarah, and the passengers on the four flights, the individuals in the towers, the professionals of the fire and police, and later the volunteers who helped work on the pile sensitive to recovering our loved one's remains. They helped pull us through the darkest days of our lives. In the last 20 years, my family and I have at times known unbearable sorrow and disbelief about the lives that would never be years we have filled with speaking out on my daughter's behalf and calling on many more precautions and also for the history to be remembered not as numbers and a date but the faces of ordinary people people who looked a lot like sarah at the first memorial ceremony my wife bobby and i stood here with thousands of family members riding the mist of a gray and black world of destroyed buildings. Today, this is a quiet place of memory. The gleaming 9-11 Museum holds a sacred repository for our loved ones' remains, and the still, brightly stories of all the sons and daughters, the siblings, husbands and wives, grandparents, and friends. As we carry these 20 years forward, I find sustenance and a continuing appreciation for all of those who rose to be more than ordinary people. And a father's pride in his daughter's selfless acts in the last moments of her life, acting with heroic calm to help those in the air and those on the ground, a legacy from Sarah that burns like an eternal flame.
8: Now they're going to read the names very Gordon shortly.
21: M. Ameth Jr., Edelmiro Abad, Marie Rose Abad, Andrew Anthony Abate, Vincent Paul Abate, Lawrence Christopher Abel, Alana Abraham, William F. Abrahamson. Richard Anthony Accetto, Heinrich Bernard Ackerman, Paul Aquaviva, Christian Adams, Donald LeRoy Adams, Patrick Adams, Shannon Lewis Adams, Stephen George Adams, Ignatius Udo Adanga. Christy A. Adamo. Terrence Edwards. The reading
8: of the names in New York City. This will go on. So many lives were lost there. Matt Piper is covering for us this morning, Matt. The emotion of the day really sets in here.
9: Especially, Steve, because just in front of me are so many people holding signs of their loved ones. Photos of them on sticks on pieces of paper with words of never forget. As for the reading of these names, we're talking about 2,983 names that will be read today. That's how many are on this 9-11 memorial. That honors the 2,977 people killed at the three attack sites on September 11th. And it also includes the six people killed in the February 1993 bombing at the World Trade Center. So they honor everyone who was killed in these attacks by the reading of these names that usually lasts throughout the morning, Steve.
8: Matt Piper in Lower Manhattan. Around this time, 20 years ago, people were taking stock of what had just happened. A plane had hit one of the World Trade Center towers. It was chaotic. A lot of things were going on. One of the first memories we have from that day when the attacks first took place was from the air. With us now is Tom Kaminsky, the traffic reporter for WCBS News Radio 880 here in New York City. He had a unique view of the events that unfolded on September 11th, 2001. Tom, it was a beautiful day that day. Certainly a good day to be in the air, but uh, you had a big job on your hands when the first plane hit that tower.
3: Steve, you know, when the first plane hit the tower, actually before it did, it flew right over our heads and we didn't even realize it. Uh, we were at the George Washington Bridge, actually just north of it, along the Major Deegan Expressway, and uh, we uh, began to head south. Uh, we saw a flash and a fireball from the top of the the World Trade Center from near the top of it. My first thought was to call the newsroom and I am calling and calling on the two-way radio and nobody is answering me. And it came to find out that everybody was crowded into our news director's office because that was the only office in our newsroom that had a direct view of downtown and they were all crowded in there. So when I started at 848, uh, our anchor at the time, Pat Carroll, introduced me, and the first words out of my mouth were something has happened at the World Trade Center. Something that has happened here at the World Trade Center. We noticed flame and an awful lot of smoke from one of the towers of the World Trade Center. We were and just at that point, all I could do was just to keep up a running commentary uh, as, as we got closer.
8: Right. So you have to get closer to the scene and describe what's going on. Obviously, you have to be very vivid in what you're saying. You have to be careful too, because it's a story that's just developing and nobody really knows quite what's happened.
3: It it was becoming very evident that something had gone into the building. In fact, when we first saw that first flash, my pilot at the time had said, I think that was a plane. And I said, Are you sure? And he said, I'm not, but I think it might have been. When we got to the Twin Towers, the first thing I needed to determine was whether or not whatever had gone into the building had gone through it. We can sort of confirm that at least to uh, some degree. Uh, we are now looking at flames shooting out of the north side. It looked of, uh, as though, and I think my description that morning was also that it looked as though the building had been cut by a switchblade. The first determination was, well, if something hit it, did it go through? And did it go through and down into the street? The only way that we could determine that was to go south of both buildings. The smoke started to drift and we had had a better view a little bit farther north. Uh, So we decided to leave that area of Battery Park and head north on the Hudson River. And we were not even at Canal Street. We were just north of, of both buildings when the second plane made that left turn approximately at the spot where we had been about 30 or 45 seconds prior to that uh, and and struck tower two. We've gone to the north side of the World Trade Center uh, so we were shielded from, the, uh, from that uh, but just uh, moments prior to that we were uh, getting a look at tower number one that was unaffected but as we were looking back we did see a second explosion of some type in tower number one so both of the towers of the World Trade Center, Are now
8: affected. Did you actually see that impact or or not?
3: We were facing north. Our camera had been rolling, and that the the camera that we had on board that helicopter provided that picture that was transmitted around the world in, in newspapers all over the world the next day of the second plane coming in from the right side of the frame just prior to hitting the building. That picture came from our camera. So I was actually shielded from that because we were facing northbound. It hit the building behind us. The only thing I remember is seeing the right window off my right shoulder light up. And at that point, we turned around and there was just debris flying everywhere. And very quickly, we could determine that it had been a little bit farther down than the first one, but in in relatively close fashion.
8: So what goes through your mind now? You have a story to describe. At first, I think a lot of people thought what happened initially could have been an accident, but now it takes on a different uh, meaning altogether.
3: We had gotten pretty good determination that there was a plane that had gone into Tower 1. In terms of what had at that point just occurred at Tower 2, we had no way of knowing whether this was somehow related to Tower 1, if this was something different. I honestly never thought terrorism at that point. I just, I, I, didn't, I didn't conceive of it. Considering that we in, in this country at that point had been very isolated from any type of activity like that, I never thought of that. By contrast, though, my wife had been on the, t- on the phone with one of our best friends who worked for the EPA. And she was working in lower Manhattan. She was on the phone with her when the second plane hit. And our friend Donna said to my wife Lynn, this is terrorism. I have to go. And there was no way I was going to speculate. The thing that was going through my head was I just needed to make sure that I described everything as accurately as I possibly could. Because I'm painting a word picture. From at least Midtown on South. So we will be looking at this from a far distance and describing from what we could see. One of my lasting memories is... I used to, I wrote everything down on a clipboard. Uh, And I remember somehow looking at at this clipboard and kind of looking a little bit away from it. And I, the clipboard was shaking in my hands. To key up my broadcast radio, I had a foot switch underneath my right foot. And my right foot was, was ground down onto this broadcast foot switch. And my right leg was shaking uncontrollably. And at that point, something in the back of my head said, you need to center yourself. And I started talking about traffic. I've been doing it for many, many years, and I knew what to say. I didn't know what this situation was that was in front of me. But if I look down on the roads, that I know I can do. So I started describing traffic on Canal Street, traffic on Chamber Street, traffic on West Street, and looking at emergency vehicles screaming down into that area from every conceivable direction. And that sort of centered me and got me back into where I, where I needed to be mentally in order to, in order to cover this.
4: That you're gone. I just want to say I love you and we miss you. Thank you so much.
8: The reading of the names going on in New York City. We heard from Tom Kaminsky, who was in the air that day on 9-11. We've had a moment of silence at 8:46, the time the first tower was hit. And they've been reading the names in New York City of the victims. At 9:03, a second moment of silence. We will be there for that when the South Tower was struck. You're listening to live coverage from CBS News. 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Let's listen to what's going on now at Ground Zero.
27: Barrett Arjun. Arthur Thaddeus Barry. Diane G. Barry. Maurice Vincent Barry. Scott D. Bart. Carlton W. Bartels. Guy Barzi. Ina B. Basina, Alicia Christine burton Bozmajan, Kenneth William Basnicki. Stephen Joseph Bates. Paul James Bataglia. W David Bauer. Ivan Luis Carpio Bautista. Marlon Capito Bautista. Mark Lawrence Bavis Jasper Baxter. Lorraine G Bay. Michelle Beal. Todd M Beamer. Paul Frederick Bettini. Jane S. Beatty Alan Anthony Beaven Lawrence Ira Beck Manette Marie Beckles Carl John Bedigian Michael Ernest Beekman and my uncle Thomas F. Swift we love you and we miss you you live on in our hearts and the hearts and minds of your family and we think about you every day and I can't wait to meet you again And my brother, T.J. Hargrave, who we continue to miss and love every day. The world is a lesser place without him.
8: Those two gentlemen reading the names of people that they lost. CBS's Matt Piper is watching all this at ground zero. President of the United States is there. Former President Clinton, former President Obama. Quite a scene.
9: That's right, Stephen. For those who are reading these names, they're actually put into a lottery. They say, yes, I want to be one of these name readers. They're put into a lottery. And then each year, different people are chosen to read these nearly 3,000 names. In the last few minutes or so, the sun has just peeked out from one of these tall buildings. And now you just see the the tops of the trees here with the sun shining off them. It's just, it's a real gorgeous day uh, as the sun is just starting to shine over this site. There's some 10,000 people here is who they are expecting. Many, many family members, of course. Within the next few moments will be the next moment of silence, Steve, when the next plane hit the other tower.
8: We should hear that bell ring very shortly. Let's listen in.
21: That's right. David W. Bernard.
18: May God bless our fallen brothers and sisters, their families.
8: Bruce Springsteen now at Ground, Ground Zero.
18: Brothers. He says, I'll see you in my dreams. My friend, and though you're gone, in my heart's been emptied, it seems. I'll see you. books that you
8: Bruce Springsteen with I'll See You In My Dreams at Ground Zero. This happening just after the second moment of silence at 9.03 when the Ray South Ray Tower was Steve. hit by United Flight 175. 51 passengers, nine crew members, they all died. It was a Boston to L.A. flight. And the names are continuing to be read at Ground Zero. William Reed
27: Bethke. Timothy D. Betterly.
12: Carolyn Mayer
27: Bughe. Edward Frank B.A. Paul Michael Baer Anil Tahilram Barvani.
12: Bella J. Buchan.
27: Shimi D. Beagleisen.
12: Peter Alexander Bielfeld
27: William G. Biggert. Brian Eugene Bilcher. Mark Bingham. Carl Vincent Beeney. And my uncle, Firefighter Joseph Patrick Henry, from Ladder Company 21. I wish I had the chance to meet you, Uncle Joey. I heard you were a great person.
12: And my husband, Thomas Michael Kelly. We love you and we miss you.
8: As this goes on at Ground Zero, let's shift to the south. Ceremony's getting underway soon at the Pentagon. CBS's Cammy McCormick is with us today. Hi, Cammy.
10: Hi, Steve. In fact, it's it's underway now. The official delegation has arrived. That included the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and the Joint Chiefs Chairman General Mark Milley. They've already played the national anthem and they've begun reading the names of the 184 people who died on September 11th. This is happening right next to the Pentagon Memorial, which was completed in 2008. It's been closed for some time because of the pandemic, but families will be allowed in there today to privately observe this anniversary. There's a series of benches representing the victims with reflecting pools, and they're surrounded by these crepe myrtles, which will grow to about 30 feet tall. There's also an age wall. It grows an inch in height per year relative to the victim's ages. The oldest victim, 71, and the youngest just three years old, Steve.
8: Interesting. That's that's a very interesting element you bring up there. And it, it's, it's so striking to see the memorials at each of the locations, how different they are, but yet how important they are and how symbolic they are of so much.
10: That's true. They are very different. I remember the first trip I made to Shanksville; it had not yet been completed, but it was one of the most powerful moments of my life to see that, and to see the the big marble um, statues that they have. And the first name that I came across was Todd Beamer. Um, Each memorial, very different, each very uh, emotional, um, and each very powerful. And their two
8: children, Cammy McCormick, with us today is. We continue to mark the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Names are being read now at the Pentagon and at Ground Zero in New York. CBS Eye on the World host John Bachelor spoke with Condoleezza Rice. She was President Bush's national security advisor at the time of the 9-11 attacks.
20: It's indelibly etched on the memories of those of us who were in New York or Washington on that day. And so the thing I remember was... Um, My assistant coming in, young military officer, and saying a plane had hit the World Trade Center and thinking, what a strange accident. And at first thinking that it was maybe a small plane that had gotten out of control. And then he said, no, no, it was a commercial airliner. And I called President Bush, who, as you remember, was in that that event, Florida. And I said, a plane hit the World Trade Center. And he said, that's a strange accident. And uh, uh, it would not be long before we realized it was not an accident at all.
22: Yes, it was not long. I was at Columbia University's Library getting ready for my work day. I was then a novelist, not on the radio. And I saw the report, and those days we did not have iPhones. They didn't exist, ancient history. I saw the report on the wired computer at the front of the room. Columbia was converting from all books to digital. And the report was odd. A plane had hit the World Trade Center. I remembered the incident, I think, in the 1940s when a commercial flight flew into the Empire State Building. That was the, in my memory. But the second plane, what did you think when your assistant came and said there was a second plane, Secretary? Secretary?
20: And I'd gone down to my staff meeting, and I would normally go around the table, and I'd ask the African special assistant or the special assistant for Europe what's going on today. And I got about two people in, and I was handed a note. It said, a second plane hit the World Trade Center. And now we knew that it was a terrorist attack. And um, I ended the meeting abruptly. I went into the operations center of of the situation room, and I said, you have to get the national security principals on the phone. And Colin Powell was actually in Peru for a uh, meeting of the Organization of American States. They said that George Tenet had gone to a bunker already out at Langley, the CIA. And they said, we can't reach Secretary Rumsfeld. His phone is just ringing and ringing and ringing. And uh, we looked behind us on, telephone, uh, on television and a plane had hit the world. Had hit the Pentagon. And so at that point, you know that this is a coordinated terrorist attack. Uh, you are fearful that others may be coming. Uh, about that time, the Secret Service said, We have got to get you to a bunker. Planes are flying into buildings all over Washington, D.C. The White House has got to be next. And uh, John, as I've said, they, they sort of don't escort you under those circumstances, they kind of lift you up and carry you. So I remember being sort of levitated. Uh, Toward the bunker, you know, my my mind uh, spinning
8: um, at 100 miles an hour. Condoleezza Rice reflecting back on 9-11 20 years ago. Former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell, is host of the Intelligence Matters podcast. He spoke with Andy Card, the White House chief of staff back on 9-11. He was in Florida with the president. It's part of a special series, Intelligence Matters Presents, Remembering 9-11.
23: I checked the classroom out to see if it was all set. I did find a misspelled word on a bulletin board, and I said, let's get something to cover up that word. I didn't want a Dan Quail potato moment. And, and then I walked into the holding room where the president was standing with the principal of the school. And I was standing at the door with the president and the principal when Navy Captain Deb Lauer, who was the acting national security advisor on the trip and the director of the White House Situation Room, came up to the president and said, sir, it appears a small twin-engine prop plane crashed into one of the towers at the World Trade Center in New York City. And the president, the principal, and I had the same reaction. Uh, was kind of, oh, what a, what a bad accident. The pilot must have had a heart attack or something. That's what we thought. And actually, somebody verbalized it. And then the principal opened the door to the classroom, and she and the president walked into the classroom, the door shut, and I'm standing there, and Captain Lauer came up to me and said, sir, it appears it was not a small 20 inch prop plane, it was a commercial jetliner. My mind flashed to the fear that the passengers on the plane must have had, they had to know it was losing altitude, but that was only for a nanosecond, because Captain Lauer came up to me and said, oh my God, another plane looks like it struck the other tower at the World Trade Center. So that's when my mind flashed to three initials, UBL, Osama bin Laden. I knew about al-Qaeda. I knew about UBL. And I knew about the attack on the World Trade Center in early 1993. And so I then performed the test that chiefs of staff have to perform all the time, every day. Does the president need to know this was an easy test to pass? Yes, yes. And I formulated in my mind what I would say to him, but I also was going to be careful because I presumed he was sitting under a boom microphone, and I didn't want him to have a conversation with me. So I decided to pass on two facts and make one obvious editorial comment, but to do nothing to invite a dialogue. I opened the door to the classroom after I thought about what I would say to him, and I noticed that the president was very attentive to the second grade students, and the teacher was conducting the dialogue between the students and the president. I didn't want to interrupt that dialogue. You know, it was good morning, Mr. President, good morning, you know, back and forth. And so I stood there, and Ann Compton in the press pool, the ABC reporter, uh, saw me enter the room, and I came in from behind the president. So he did not see me come into the room. And it was unusual for me to enter a room after the president had come in. It was certainly unusual for me to kind of enter from backstage or come in behind the president. But Ann Copton looked up at me and gestured with her arms, "Uh, what's up? And then I gestured with my hands showing a plane crashing into a building type of thing. And she gestured with her hands like, what, what? And then the teacher stopped talking about the dialogue with the president and told the students to take out their books to get ready to read with them. As the students were reaching down under their desks to get their books, my pet goat, which they were going to read with the president, that's when I walked up to the president. He never turned around to me. He did kind of tilt his head to the right. And I leaned over and I whispered to him. A second plane hit the second tower. America is under attack. That's Andrew Card, who was President George W. Bush's
8: chief of staff on 9-11, recalling the moments when he learned what had happened in New York City. You're listening to live coverage of 20 Years Later, America Remembers 9-11 from CBS News. The president of the United States now, of course, is Joe Biden. He is in New York City He's listening to the names being read of the victims, 9-11, and our man at the White House, CBS's Stephen Portnoy, is with him today. Hello, Stephen.
32: Hello, Steve. The the emotional weight of this moment has fallen upon all of us here in lower Manhattan as we watch, along with President Biden, the reading of the names. The relatives of those who were killed on 9-11, reading the names of the nearly 3,000 people who were killed in the attacks. Have, of course, been the moments of silence, the bells that we all remember at these commemorative ceremonies. Uh, and President Biden uh, is is watching along with us. Just a moment ago, I saw he had his arms folded in front of him, a pained look on his face, uh, an even more pained look on the face of Dr. Jill Biden, the first lady. She watched uh, two young girls reading the names. Uh, obviously, these young girls were not were not uh, around on 9-11. So they're, they're speaking on behalf of their families and their relatives. And you could see the pain in the face of Dr. Joe Biden, the first lady. She was on the phone with Joe Biden, then Senator Joe Biden, 20 years ago today, at this moment when Joe Biden was on an Amtrak train headed south from Wilmington to Washington. He was headed to work to go to Capitol Hill in his job in the Senate. And in his 2008 book, Promises to Keep, Joe Biden writes of how Jill Biden said, oh, my God, oh, my God describing the second plane hitting the second tower. Joe Biden writes of how it was his intent to go right to Capitol Hill and to the floor of the Senate to demonstrate to the country that the American government was still in operation, but the Capitol had been evacuated. In fact, the current president wrote in his book of how uh, he was warned by a Capitol police officer that a fourth hijacked plane was headed for the Capitol city. In fact, United 93, the hijacked plane was headed in the direction of Washington. Today, President Biden visits all three of the 9-11 sites. We're here in Lower Manhattan at the 9-11 Memorial. From here, we'll go to Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and then the president will travel on to the Pentagon.
8: Stephen Portnoy, thanks very much. He's traveling with President Biden today. Let's return to New York City in the reading of the names.
34: Leonard M. Castriano. Jose Ramon Castro. William E. Caswell. Richard G. Catarelli Christopher Sean Caton Robert John Caulfield Mary Teresa Caulfield Judson Cavalier Michael Joseph Cauley Jason David Kane, Juan Armando Ceballos Marcia G. Cecil Carter Jason Michael Cefalu Thomas Joseph Selleck. Anna Mercedes Centeno. Joni Sesta. John J. Chada, Jeffrey Mark Chernoff. Swarna Chalasani. And my uncle Robert G. McIlvain. Although I wasn't lucky enough to have met you, your spirit lives on in myself, my brother, and sisters and all those who loved you. I am honored to carry your name, and I am living proof that life loves on. And my father, Daniel R. Nolan.
8: Two young people reading the names in New York.
33: William. And at
8: the Pentagon, a similar situation is going on for the 125 people who died at the Pentagon there. John
33: P. Sammartino. Colonel David M. Scales, United States Army. Commander Robert A. Slagle, United States Navy. Janice M. Scott. Lieutenant Colonel Michael L. Selves, United States Army, retired. Marianne H. Serva. Commander Dan F. Shanover. That's
8: the sound of things going on at the Pentagon. CBS's Cammie McCormick is watching that, and she joins us now. Hello, Cammie.
10: Hello, Steve. There were 184 victims at the Pentagon, including 64 passengers and crew on American Airlines Flight 77. You're hearing... A lot of uh, military names being read here. Many of the victims were working inside the Pentagon that day. It's believed as many as 18,000 people were working in the building that day. When it it was hit by the west side of the building, the plane crashing within two seconds and and slamming through three wings of the west side of the Pentagon. We're expecting to hear after the moment of silence, which is at 9.37 Eastern time this morning. We're expecting to hear from the Joint Chiefs Chairman, General Mark Milley, as well as Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. And Austin, we expect, will probably pay tribute not only to the victims of these attacks, but also to the service members who have given their lives in the wars that have followed these attacks, both in Afghanistan and Iraq. As many as 4,400 casualties in Iraq, with a combat mission ending there in 2010, and 2,448 killed in Afghanistan after 20 years of war there, Steve.
8: And, Cammie, for you, the war takes on a very personal note. You covered it for many years for us. You were injured there. Certainly your thoughts on this day, return to New York. You covered the events there and wartime events as
10: well. Yeah, you can certainly never forget being in New York on 9-11. No one will ever forget that. But all of the events that followed, um, who could have imagined how much that day would have changed so many lives with... President George W. Bush at that point declaring the global war on terror. And all these global alliances changing and the U.S. focusing first on Afghanistan, where a lot of progress was made early on. In fact, the Taliban fell quite quickly when Kandahar went down. But then, of course, the attention shifted to Iraq in 2003 and the invasion there. And Afghanistan became what many people called the forgotten war for many years. At different points during the last 20 years, those two wars have been the forgotten war. They've been labeled depending on how much public support they had back here in the U.S. Uh, But it has been 20 years of a lot of experiences that I never thought I would see including being wounded and being treated at at Walter Reed along with many other wounded service members Um, during the height of the insurgency in Afghanistan and before that in Iraq and uh, doctors, there are still working on some of the injured service members we saw from just a few days ago in Afghanistan.
8: And it's so important to remember those military people who died in the wars and were injured. I mean, they, this is a ceremony about the 9-11 victims, but certainly those folks can't be too far from anyone's thoughts.
10: Well, absolutely. And, and some of the young service members that we saw killed in Afghanistan just days ago, many of them just babies. During the 9 11 attacks. Um, that especially brings it home, you know, how long ago this was. And, and, but so many things have not changed that, you know, even when the global war on terror was announced in uh, Guantanamo, the detention center there opened, and all the investigations, the 9 11 Commission, Americans were, were still going, going to Afghanistan and Iraq and the, and the wars. The generals, the military leaders, the presidents involved in all of this. The missions always seemed to remain the same, but the strategies kept changing. And there were many points in both wars where service members didn't quite know what they were supposed to be doing. We sent Marines into southern Afghanistan more than once, including just a few years ago. And the same story in Iraq. There were surges, there were reductions in forces, there were withdrawals. Um, It's been all over the map. And so anybody who served any amount of time in Iraq or Afghanistan is, is feeling probably very powerful emotions today.
8: And I would think, given the way the war ended, I've certainly heard interviews with veterans. You may have talked to some on your own uh, who feel betrayed by the way things ended and the fact that the Taliban now runs that country, Afghanistan, once again.
10: Yeah, the first 9-11 now that uh, the Taliban's in charge. Um, I think veterans have a lot of mixed emotions. I know a lot of veterans were in support. Of finally ending that war. But I, I think what was most disturbing for most of them, regardless of what they felt about that decision, was the way it ended and the chaos that we saw and the evacuations. When you know, when President Trump, some administration first signed the peace deal with the Taliban, the original withdrawal deadline was May 1st. I had someone say to me just the other day, well, why weren't we prepared? And I said, well, you know, that we, President Biden extended that deadline until August and it, it appeared by looking at things, by watching events that, that we saw and, and hearing about what was happening, that the U.S. military did not seem to be prepared for how quickly Afghan security forces fell. But then you compare the two countries, Afghanistan and Iraq, the trillions of dollars we spent in both countries training their forces and propping up some governments there. And the forces fell in both countries very quickly, in Iraq to ISIS, and U.S. troops had to return there, and in Afghanistan to the Taliban, in both cases, because those troops lacked the will to fight, and in both cases, probably because of their weak governments.
8: Cammie McCormick, thanks, as 9-11 ceremonies continue at the Pentagon and in New York City at Ground Zero as well. You know, 23 members of the New York City Police Department were killed on 9-11, NYPD officers were among the first responders who rushed in moments after American Flight 11 crashed into the North Tower. Retired NYPD officer Joseph Lutriaro was one of them. In 2007, he shared his memories with the team at StoryCorps and the 9-11 Memorial and Museum.
35: We got to the World Trade Center in a matter of minutes my thought was to run in and get as many people out as I can. We were approached by a teacher, and she was holding a child. She said, there's a daycare center, and we just started grabbing children. I, I wanted to get as many out as I possibly could, and the last time I went in the building, there was only one child left to grab. Uh, he was around the age of my son at the time, and he was absolutely panicking, and I ripped open my shirt, and I just stuffed his head in there, and we dropped him off to these people that we were carrying the children away. And then I ran into the South Tower and I realized that something was happening because the floor became like a total earthquake. I remember flying through the air and I had no idea that the entire building fell. All well, I remember is being in a dark place uh, with very little room. My initial thought was, I'm dead. They'll find me tomorrow and they'll bury me the next day. And then I said, who's going to raise my kids? If I can't do it, who's going to do it? Sometime later, I remember a fireman and paramedic, they were reaching for me and moving these big pieces of steel, and I was able to squeeze out, and my arm was out of its socket. They popped it back in, and they wrapped it. And that night, we met up with our unit, and my supervisor said, Joe, you got to get you to a hospital. You know, your arm is falling out of your body. I said, no, I'll go when I need to go. And I worked there three weeks straight. I had one good arm and two good legs. We had a job to do, and that's it.
8: So many stories from 9-11. That's just one of them. Many filled with emotion, drama, and uh, people getting hurt. People were killed on 9-11, so many. And those names are being read in New York. And at the Pentagon, where the first attacks took place, we'll get to Shanksville, Pennsylvania later. Let's go to Ground Zero in New York. CBS's Matt Piper is there.
9: Steve, we are just a few minutes away from the third moment of silence, which is when American Airlines Flight 77 struck the Pentagon. We've already heard two previous moments of silence from when a plane struck the North Tower here and struck the South Tower here at the World Trade Center site. This is a place for family members to be, to remember their loved ones. But there's also so many things to do here for those who are visiting New York or who just want to learn the history of what happened here on 9-11-2001. This is a museum that displays 60,000 items to share stories of loss. That's really underground here at the World Trade Center site. It's 110,000 square feet. And in this memorial that so many people see on TV with the cascading waterfalls, there are uh, two uh, big ponds of water. That's also where you see people's names etched in marble around them, reflecting pools set in the footprints of the Twin Towers. Each one is about an acre in size, and those waterfalls are about 30 feet that cascade down all sides. It's really just a sight to see, and it's also something you might be able to hear in the background is, is the water that flows 365 days a year, 24-7, and they're flowing again today on this gorgeous day at September 11th.
8: Matt Piper at Ground Zero. Let's shift to the Pentagon. Ceremonies are underway there, the reading of the names.
10: Setting up this ceremony for many days now, closing down huge portions of Pentagon parking lots and so forth. It's the first time, really, that I've seen this done. Usually in years past, we've seen the families of those who lost their lives that day gather and stand as very short ceremonies take place. There's very few speeches. There's the reading of the names and the ringing of the bells. Taps is always played. This year, they put out all of these white chairs. There's dozens and dozens of them, and the families are seated in these chairs watching A military band perform right now earlier at sunrise, as it happens every year. The Pentagon unfurls a huge U.S. flag along the western side of this building. It's really a remarkable thing to see, and it's very quiet every year. You just see that flag unfurled. This year we also had bagpipes that played Amazing Grace. So it's a slightly different ceremony this year In that, the way it was set up, but I don't think it will look very much different in terms of we'll hear from the defense secretary briefly making very brief remarks as well as the joint chiefs chairman. And again, the president and vice president will be here much later in the day after these ceremonies have ended. They will lay a wreath. In the meantime, the Pentagon Memorial will be open for these families to go in and mourn their losses
8: and again help us through what that memorial looks like uh Cammy, we're we're so familiar with the New York uh, the New York memorial and how that looks with the water tumbling down and with the museum in the backdrop we've seen a lot of images of that Pentagon perhaps not so much for people what I does
10: that look like i would you join me in prayer Yes, it's, it's right next to the Pentagon and it's, it's a, a sort of enclosed space. It's been closed off for, for months because of the pandemic, of course, but it's, it's a very beautiful, peaceful, um, interesting design in that they've got these benches that represent the victims with reflecting pools underneath them and they're surrounded by these crepe myrtle trees. Um, and there's this age wall that grows an inch in height per year relative to the victim's ages. Um, it, it was finished fairly quickly. I believe it was the first of the memorials to be finished back in 2008. And you've seen the pictures of what was done to this building when that plane crashed into the western side of it. The building itself was repaired within a year. So much of this was completed very quickly. Let's listen to some of what's going on at the
30: Pentagon. These great American heroes who have laid such a supreme sacrifice on to the altar of freedom. And Lord, we ask that you bring them comfort, comfort to all survivors as our nation remembers their patriotism. Oh God, we also remember and offer thanks to those who served, delivered aid, delivered assistance, and even saved others in this time of tragedy and need.
8: Prayers at the Pentagon were just a few minutes away.
30: Twenty years later, our prayer is that we unite together as a nation and embrace one another with dignity and respect for all that we seek peaceful resolutions and we learn to choose love over fear each day and lord with your help oh god help us find hope and forgiveness in ourselves and in this world which we live that we can make a difference to everyone around us. Lord, through your help, through your guidance, through your loving grace, we pray this in thy holy name. Amen. I now invite you to stand and join me in a moment of silence.
33: Ladies and gentlemen, please be seated.
8: It's live coverage from the Pentagon of ceremonies going on there. A moment of silence for the victims of the attack at the Pentagon. At the same time in New York, they paused the reading of the names at 9.37 and rang a bell and observed a moment of silence as well. CBS's Cammy McCormick is following the activity today at the Pentagon. Cammy.
10: Yeah, very emotional words there from the military chaplain. Um, he spoke of unity, and I think that's a theme we're, we're hearing a lot of today. A lot of people would like for Americans to get back to that sense of unity that we had in the days following 9-11, where we were all in this together. And it was interesting that the chaplain chose that as well as something to, to speak about today. But he was so emotional as he was speaking, he was actually shaking.
14: Mm.
8: It's a nice day in that area, in Arlington, Virginia, and uh, a nice day in New York for these ceremonies as the names of the victims are read. Let's listen to what's going on now at the Pentagon.
29: Of a normal Tuesday morning with a near cloudless This is Joint sky, Chiefs
10: Chairman General Martin. Milley. The
29: in the low 60s, and it promised to be a beautiful day. The passengers and crew of American Airlines Flight 77... We're a little over an hour into their flight from Dulles to L.A., fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, sons, daughters, brothers, and sisters. All that changed at 9.37 a.m. as the innocent were craw- caught in the crossfire of terror. The ideology of hatred unfolded on this very ground. In seconds, scores of lives were lost. 184 men, women, and children were slaughtered in the violent impact and fury. 59 passengers and crew, 125 of our Pentagon colleagues, and the innocent ranged in age from three to 71 years old. Those who perished here were among the 2,977 killed on that day here in New York and in Pennsylvania. Not for what they did, but for what they believed and what they represented. Not for anything they did, but rather for who they were. The people we lost that day are not just names and numbers. Mm -hmm. We remember them today for not only who they were, but for what they could have become. They were irreplaceable to their families, instrumental in their jobs, woven into the fabric of their community, full of life and potential. Lives cut short. Pain that can never be properly described in words. Suffering that will never fully heal, and no words that I nor anyone else will ever say that can fill the gaping hole. But we, the living, we have a solemn duty to honor their memory, their legacy, to honor and remember them, not just today, but every day. The horrific acts of terrorism on that day were meant to disrupt our way of life and destroy the idea that is America, that idea is simple, yet incredibly powerful. The idea that terrorists hate and fear. The idea that all of us, men and women, black and white, Asian and Indian, no matter what the color of our skin, no matter if we are Catholic or Protestant, Muslim or Jew, or if you choose not to believe at all. The idea is that each and every one of us is created free and equal. The idea that we will rise or fall based on our merit. The idea of a free press, free speech, due process of law, the right to vote or peacefully assemble and protest for or against this cause or that. The idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All of that is what our fallen believed in, and what they embodied. All of the values and principles embedded in our Constitution and made real in our daily lives were paid for with the blood of the fallen on this place at 937 on September 11th, 2001. Those ideas were and still are hated by our enemies, the fascists, the Nazis, the communists, Al Qaeda, ISIS, the Taliban, authoritarians, dictators, and tyrants of all kinds. They hate those ideas. They hate those values. And on 911, they tried to destroy us. They tried to divide us. And they tried ultimately in vain to terrify us. But their murderous intent was never realized. Instead of sowing fear and division, we gathered in New York and Pennsylvania, right here at the Pentagon. And we came together as a nation with acts of heroism, unity, and perseverance, many conducted by you in the audience today. We grieve for our fallen. We celebrate the life they led. Their legacy lives on in the idea that is America. And no terrorist anywhere on earth can ever destroy that idea. Since that dark day 20 years ago, the men and women of the United States military have fought tirelessly to defeat terrorists in Afghanistan and around the world. Both at home and abroad, their talent and their efforts and their courage, their personal valor has carried this fight day and night. We did not fear what was in front of us because we loved what was behind us. 800,000 of us in uniform served in Afghanistan over the last 20 years. Tens of thousands more have served elsewhere in the collective fight against terrorism. And thousands more stand watch today all around the world. 2,461 of us gave the last full measure of devotion, including 13 just two weeks ago. While 20,698 of us were wounded and untold thousands more suffer with the invisible wounds of war as we close this terrible chapter in our nation's history. For two consecutive decades, our men and women in uniform, along with our brothers and sisters in the intelligence and law enforcement agencies, protected our nation from terrorist attack. For those of us in uniform, for our families who have suffered and sacrificed along our side, for those who have supported us, these have been incredibly emotional, exhausting, and trying years. We are all now, this very day, very conflicted with feelings of pain and anger, sorrow and sadness, combined with pride and resilience. But one thing I am certain of, for every soldier, sailor, airman, and marine, for every CIA officer, for every FBI agent, for every cop and fireman, you did your duty. Your service mattered. Your sacrifice was not in vain. So let us resolve. Let us resolve here yet again today, on this hallowed ground, to never forget, to never forget those who were murdered by terrorists. Never forget those who rushed to save their lives and gave theirs in exchange. Never forget the sons and the daughters, the brothers and sisters, and the mothers and fathers who gave their tomorrows for our todays. Honor them. Honor them today and forever. Honor the cause they served. Honor their commitment to this experiment in liberty that we call the United States of America. Ladies and gentlemen, it's now my pleasure and deep honor to introduce Secretary of Defense of the United States of America, the Honorable That's General
8: Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs at the Pentagon. Uh, President Biden has left New York. He's got stops at both the Pentagon and in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. The former president of the United States, George W. Bush, is there. The ceremony is underway. In
30: the face of tremendous adversity, we remember and we come together today to honor them. Let us also remember those who perished at the World Trade Center and at the Pentagon on that day 20 years ago.
8: Ceremony I underway in Shanksville, Shanksville Flight 93. CBS National National Jim
11: Crisouli is there, Jim.
30: ...formed by the president's own the United States
11: Marine Right Bay. now we're hearing from a regional director-supervisor of the National Park Service. He oversees this National Park facility along with several others here in southwestern Pennsylvania. As you mentioned, Steve, the ceremony is underway. We will hear from among others former President George W. Bush, who's been here many times to this site, again, that many consider to be very sacred ground. Looking up from this site right now, Steve, I'm struck by the fact that there are a number of contrails from airplanes above and one of the things I remember from September 11th I spent most of the day driving up from North Carolina seven or eight hour drive and there wasn't a cloud in the sky and that was pretty much the case over the eastern half of the United States it was just an absolutely pristine beautiful blue sky and one of the things I remember about September 11th Steve was the fact that there were no contrails of course all of the planes that were in the air in the morning were grounded Uh, sent to the closest airport they could get to, Steve.
8: And, of course, the families of the victims of Flight 93 know that they played a hand, their relatives, their friends, played a hand in stopping an attack that was destined for Washington.
11: That's right, and that's something that, to a person, they will say that they don't ever want forgotten. There are often, almost daily, in fact, school groups that come here to the Flight 93 national memorial. Again, this is a set in a pasture, what was a strip mine. And these school groups come to this location about 70 miles or so to the southeast of Pittsburgh. And there are Flight 93, what they call Flight 93 ambassadors, and they meet with school groups. And they, they tell these young kids, these young people, what happened here. And the fact that the 40 passengers and crew of United Flight 93, which had left Newark, New Jersey, headed for San Francisco, are considered heroes. They took a vote on that plane and decided to take action. Remember that even before this plane took off, Flight 93 took off from Newark, the passengers were already aware, the crew was already aware of hijackings that were going on and planes hitting buildings in New York. And as a result, and even We, of course, have some recordings of people who were on Flight 93 describing the action they were going to take. You'll you'll recall, Steve, perhaps that some of the flight attendants went to the back of the plane and got boiled water from the coffee makers to throw on the hijackers who had taken over the plane in the cockpit after they had incapacitated the two pilots and took control. So, again, these people... Decided to take action. They did. There was a struggle. This plane was flown into the ground here at an estimated 560 miles or so an hour. That's why, upon impact, it left a crater 40 feet deep.
8: Jim Crisula in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. The ceremony underway there now. Former President George W. Bush is in attendance. We're going back to New York now. Let's listen to the names being read. We're approaching the time at 9:59. Moment of silence for the fall of the South Tower. Let's listen.
34: Christopher Epps. Ulf Rahm Erickson. Erwin L. Erker.
17: William John Irwin,
34: Sarah Ali Escarcega. Jose Espinal. Fanny Espinoza.
17: Billy Scoop Esposito.
34: Bridget Ann Esposito.
17: Francis Esposito,
34: Michael A. Esposito,
17: Ruben Esquilin Jr., Sadie Et, Barbara G. Etzold,
34: Eric Brian Evans,
17: Robert Edward Evans,
34: Meredith Emily June our Catherine K. Fagan, and my uncle, Lukasz Tomasz Malevski, who I never met but I miss very dearly. My mom always talks about how much of an amazing brother you were. We were so sad you had to go so soon and so young. But I'll love you forever, and you'll never be
17: forgotten. And my uncle, Paul Edward Jeffers. Twenty years later, we are still reminded of you and think of you every day. We love you, and we miss you.
8: The names being read Can at Ground show? Zero, yeah. so many by young people who are... Who well, were not around. They hadn't been born yet. They're talking about uncles. They're talking about family members who they never met. We, we see that more and more as time goes on, 20 years since nine eleven. CBS's Matt Piper is at ground zero. Matt?
9: And Steve, there are so many family members of those who lost loved ones on that day. I'm actually standing here with Wayne Grant, whose wife lost her brother, not just from what happened that day, but
36: actually... Years later, Wayne, can you tell me about him? Well, I didn't really know him that well. Um, what I've heard about him were a lot of great things. He was a police officer in uh, Brooklyn South, if I'm not mistaken, and he responded to the 9/11 event and in the aftermath, you know a lot we lost a lot of people to, to, to uh, cancers and, and other illnesses and he succumbed to his illness. So we're just here to show support for the family and the 9-11 Foundation and just to, you know, support America and show our sympathy to the situation after 20 years. It's been, you know, it's been traumatic. So he was here
9: in the aftermath and, and wound up dying years later from, from being down here in the days following.
36: That's correct. He, he, was, he was assisting with the pile and um, found out that he had acquired some um, cancers and he fought the good fight but he didn't make it but listen he was a proud american
9: and and quickly what's it like to be down here on a day like today
36: well today is very um symbolic you know after 20 years we've been able to absorb we've left afghanistan the war is over so for me even though it's a solemn occasion we can rejoice it's over osama bin laden is dead
9: (laughs) wayne thank you very much uh, he's he's just one of of uh, many of uh, family members who are here, and, and the way to to be able to to recognize them here is that they're, they're all wearing blue ribbons. So you see thousands of people walking around here with blue ribbons, and that symbolizes the fact that they are either a family member or they were invited from the family of a fallen person. They're expecting as many as 10,000 of those here today and there are many of them luckily it's it's just a gorgeous day here as the sun shines down into these trees there's more than 100 white oak trees that surround this memorial plaza which helps in terms of of the shade as we continue Steve to listen to these names being read which will last hours for the nearly 3,000 names and as you say,
8: Matt, uh, in, in hearing your interview there, there are so many others who have died since 9-11 from being so close to the dust and the debris, the toxic smoke. Day after day, they did it because they cared about people who were in those buildings. They did it because it was their job. And uh, so many of those stories to tell as well. And it's, it's good to hear and a reminder of those as we point toward 959. The next moment of silence in New York. President Biden has left New York. He is going to Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and the Pentagon. There are ceremonies going on there now. The Secretary of Defense is speaking at the Pentagon, and in Shanksville, uh, that ceremony is underway. We'll listen in on all of them as we listen in on these ceremonies going on in three different locations.
21: Michael Bradley Finnegan, Timothy J. Finnerty, Michael C. Fiore, Stephen J. Fiorelli, Paul M. Fiore, John B. Fiorito, John R. Fisher, Andrew Fisher, Bennett Lawson Fisher. Gerald P. Fisher. John Roger Fisher. Thomas J. Fisher. Lucy A. Fishman. Ryan D. Fitzgerald. Thomas James Fitzpatrick. Richard P. Fitzsimmons. Salvatore Fume Fredo. Darlene E. Flagg. Wilson F. Flagg. Christina Donovan Flannery. Eileen Fletcher. And my father-in-law, Lieutenant John A. Cresci, FDNY. Your family loves you and misses you very much. And thank you for sending your son to me. He's a wonderful husband, the best husband a girl could ask for. And I know he learned that from you. We miss you and we love you very much.
8: some music now after the moment of silence for the falling of the south tower CBS's Matt Piper is taking it all in in New York City Matt
9: Yes yeah, Steve 9:59 a.m. This moment 20 years ago is when that south tower collapsed the first of the two towers to come down it's an image that so many people have etched in their minds from that day Lots of family members here holding signs wearing t-shirts with a photo of their brother, their wife, their spouse who died on that day. Lots of hugs. And I've also seen a lot of tears. You know, some people here are, you know, big FDNY guys or or officers who are not in their uniforms, but you see some of these six-foot-two guys hugging and, and crying and it really just makes you realize how much loss was at this location 20 years ago when you just see so many people who are still upset. But this is really just the day for them, for those 3,000 names to be read. And they get a moment to remember their loved one and to hold up a sign and to maybe say a few words about them as we hear these people who read the names, who are chosen out of a lottery-type system here. Some of them get to, you know, say a few words about their loved one, who, who, some of whom they never even got to meet, unfortunately, Steve.
8: Matt Piper in New York, thank you. Emotional moments there as uh, 9.59 passes and the falling of the South Tower. Another moment of silence is coming up very soon at 10.03 Eastern time for Flight 93. Let's go to Shanksville, Pennsylvania.
34: Beautiful loved one, Jeremy Logan Glick,
6: Kristen Osterholm White Gould.
7: Catuzzi Grand Colas and our unborn child,
20: Wanda Anita Green.
0: My dad, Donald Freeman Green.
21: My sister, Linda Christine, Christine. Grotland.
8: Observances going on in Shanksville, Pennsylvania and at Ground Zero in New York where they take note of that 10.03 moment of of silence for the victims on Flight 93 that crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. CBS's Jim Krasula is on hand for that ceremony. He's been on hand for so many of them since 9-11. Jim?
11: Steve, it is said that time heals, but it's obvious that... A whole lot more time is going to be needed for these families of the 40 passengers and crew of United Flight 93 to heal. As these names are being read, moment of silence, heads are bowed, tears still flow 20 years later. I'm sitting a bit away from the ceremony, and the only sound I can hear, Steve, are crickets. And you sit here and try to imagine the horror of what unfolded here 20 years ago at this very moment. And, of course, you can't. You look up into the sky and you try to imagine what was happening on that plane, the struggle,
30: the hero's final moments before
11: it hit here at this old abandoned strip mine in southwestern Pennsylvania, Steve.
8: And you do have to think about that because certainly what went on on that plane was amazing. Uh, It's, of course, been done by Hollywood, the movie Flight 93. They've dramatized that, and if it was anything like how it was portrayed there, I mean, you know your situation is dire, and you have to step in to try to act so that something worse doesn't take place.
11: As I've often said, Steve, it strikes me every time I'm here at this Flight 93 National Memorial how reflective people are. For the most part, they're in quiet as they look out at, at the 17-ton boulder that now sits where that crater was, where the plane made impact, right at the edge of a grove of hemlock trees. Uh, much of that grove was burned uh, as the plane crashed and exploded, the tremendous amount of jet fuel that it had on it. Of course, it was flying across the country from Newark to San Francisco and. The hijackers took control of the plane, Steve, about over Cleveland, maybe as the crow flies 100 miles or so to the west of here, and they turned the plane to the southeast, at, ultimately hoping to get to the U.S. Capitol, and of course, it never made it. Flying time, this is about 18 minutes or so, it's estimated, from here to the U.S. Capitol.
8: You've talked to a lot of people who knew people on Flight 93 in in your years going to Shanksville, Pennsylvania. You know, I'm sure they have stories to tell. I'm sure some maybe had last-minute phone conversations. A lot of passengers did get on air phones. They got a chance to perhaps say goodbye or at least hear the voice of a loved one.
11: Yes, and one of the things that is striking, you talk to family members. And they talk, Steve, about their gratefulness, their gratitude toward the people of Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and nearby Somerset. Uh, Shanksville only has about 230 people, 100 houses in the town, a fire station, a convenience store, a couple of churches. That's all that there is in Shanksville. And then about 15, 20 miles away is the larger town of Somerset, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. Again, a relatively small town, only about 6,000 people. It's right on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, an exit on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. But the family members of those who died here, they talk about how they now feel to be extended family of those who live here, the way the people in the community and communities throughout, really throughout Somerset County here in southwestern Pennsylvania reached out to them initially in the days after September 11th, and they continue to do so 20 years later and vow that that will continue. As I say, there's a strong sense here among local people that they never want the nation or the world to forget the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice that the people, the 40 passengers and crew members on Flight 93 made to very possibly save the U.S. Capitol.